Wait, you, so you, you <laughs> it's so theoretical it's, for but me it's though. It's theoretical. <laughs> like the, I think, I think the draw of, of, I don't know, ego looking for accolades in a way mm. is really a tough thing to manage. Like in that situation for somebody to go and ski the Wickersham wall and not say a word, it's a pretty big deal. I think, I mean, in this day and age, I, I think, think it's that a huge is deal in this day and age. Proud. Yeah. I mean, I, it's ego looking for accolades it's also just like you know a wallet looking for a buck though for other people too which is which is annoying to have to balance those things i think at least for me it is yeah because you want to fund the next thing in a way Mm -hmm. um anyway i i i this idea like when you're talking about sort of We'll get to introductions in a second but sort of talking about steep skiing and, and layla peak i mean obviously that is an incredible looking slope if you'd call it a face maybe i don't know line um and that more stuff it seemed like there was a period of time especially in the in the himalayas or the karakoram where the ski descents were uh, um an interesting objective right like a like and more common in a way uh especially when there were big first descents to have to have done you know let's just say Mount Everest. <laughs> um, but once it got skied and then snowboarded or, you know, after all of the descent techniques, um, you know, had, had been expressed on it, let's say, um, with, and I don't even know who, is Kammerlander mm-hmm. credited with the first ski descent? Mm-hmm. And then Kit, obviously. Um, Marcus Frady. Blavan flew his paraglider off the top, but that was so, that was like 1988. That was so long ago. No one remembers that. Um, but then but, it becomes but, kind of washed up with what is a ski descent of that one specifically, at least. Yes. Know? Like, where do you, what is okay to um, resort to the rope, I guess? Mm-hmm. Which is like, what, where, sorry. I, and I think that's, I think um, I, my sense, you know, my memory blinkered a little bit was, was that maybe the, um, that Kammerlander like missed the top 80 meters like it was too icy or something and started not too far below the summit because then um uh to to Eastern European guy sponsored by Elon um darn maybe died recently oh yeah uh yeah I know you're talking about um maybe he was actually the first one to go from the very summit. I can, like, I can't remember. It's just, it's cause it's long enough ago. And I'm yeah, when he had died, I, I had not heard of him and I looked at his resume and I was like, Oh, Ooh. and Everest may have been D- one of those things. Yeah. I want to say Davo. Some Varnick, Varnick. Anyway. Uh, and there's guys around like that have done stuff. Like if you look back in the, the annals of the, you know, ski descents and that kind of thing. And just go, Oh, what about the North face of Mount Robson? Okay. Those were some guys like from the neighborhood kind of, mm-hmm. um, 
26 and 29 years old when they did it. Too. Yeah, Spryce Nick Piotr. Piotr, yeah. Piotr, um, who I'd met, I'd taught that guy how to paraglide in like 1987 or something. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's epic. And uh, I wanna see, I'm trying to think who else. And that got was, repeated two years ago. Probably fairly, yeah. But it seems like the, the, like the big objectives happen and then the activity disappears from the range or around that objective. I feel like it's starting to come back now and maybe that's technology maybe it's just interest you know sort of going in cycles yeah that's been a flow of interest that we were talking about right i I think it could be i mean i look at things that were skied and maybe it's been a while and it's it's no first descent now but it's it's like the first of a generation so to speak you know yeah or it's the and, and done in a way like we were, you were talking about the the big three in the Alaska range of Hunter, Foraker, and uh, Denali, um, being looked at in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Like if you do, and from a climbing perspective, I mean, it went from what the first descent of the Infinite Spur I think was nine days, <laughs> George and Michael, and then the second ascent was like fourteen days, <laughs> and then. And look at it now. And, and now look at it now. And then like Stephen Rollo chopped that time, you know, down to whatever it was, 44 hours round trip or 48. And then, I mean, I think, I think Colin went jogging recently and somehow, you know. 28 hours later. He's exactly. <laughs> and, and, and it seems that way with the ski descents as well. Like, oh, you, these guys went and did the big three in a month. And it was Andrew, the only person to have, sort of at that point at that point done all three and it took him like you said 14 years Mm -hmm. to like find the right conditions motivation relationship to risk everything um to come on come together uh took him 14 years and he's no slouch right (laughs) but there was also no precedent at that point right yeah which is yeah i mean that's kind of what i was talking about earlier just seeing these when the precedent when it shifts in front of you, it's a lot easier to follow that than to be the person who's, I mean, I've never been in the position to change a precedent. Holding up a torch and kind of exactly. looking down a really dark place. Like, um, <laughs> I don't really see down there, but. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, another episode of the nonprofit podcast <laughs> starts with the listeners having missed the first hour <laughs> yeah pretty much now i understand um, how it happens <laughs> no it's it's funny isn't it like um and uh brody welcome thank you thank you for being here kelly halpin welcome back thank you it's nice to see you yeah. we expended most of our talking energy yesterday so if you're silent this entire time i, I won't be surprised <laughs> we had some great floor conversations though we did yeah we did um Brody, how do you please pronounce your last name? Because I'm uh, Levin. Levin. Okay, yeah. so it's exactly like I was about to say, and then I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna make him say it because I don't like <laughs> I don't like screwing up. Um, you have a pretty remarkable skiing history, and actually, uh, more impressed in, in in a sense of the the diversity of the adventures that call you. So I was looking on the on your site today. Um, so it's just like, okay, I know him that I know his name in connection to protect our winters hmm. and Steve skiing. Hmm. And then I realized that sometimes you hang things off of your bike and go out into the wilderness for <laughs> lengthy periods of time. 
and uh, I was kind of I was kind of laughing about the the account of the the tour around Ketchum to try and like kind of sort of maybe want to circumnavigate the sawtooth, but yeah, it's like a little bit mudslides. <laughs> well, yeah, or or finding. I mean, it's just such beautiful terrain up there for riding. Sure. I mean, I think the diversity of activities is inherent in not really being a specialist in any of them, you know. How did, um, did you come into, like, the, the, the world of outdoor adventure via skiing or another, another means? Uh, I, th- I think so. I mean, I'm from Ohio, so. Okay, whereabouts? Outside of Cleveland. All right. Like the country outside of Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a frequent podcast guest of ours, Mr. Joel Holmes, is sort of from that zone another friend Cole Hanley's from he lives just outside of Cleveland oh no and oh yeah yeah there's for some reason every now and then like some people move some people move west from Ohio oh yeah and and Cole comes out a lot I mean he does he's done the Wasatch 100 a few times <laughs> um cruise for people at Leadville all the time but he still like lives that. there but he still lives there yeah oh. business and family and that kind of thing so he's got yeah. a, he's got a, a solid anchor somehow though it, which I marvel at um the, the, living at basically sea level that he can come out west and, and run wasatch and run wasatch wow. like very little acclimatization you know because because there can't be enough you can't get enough time off work yeah i mean i live at for my parents at pretty high elevation in ohio it's like like 500 something feet is high for it's ohio, high yeah right <laughs> and yeah so i can't imagine can't imagine doing that and, and um did you go to school there Mm, I moved out here to go to school. school. Okay. Yeah. It was kind of like, uh, it was one of those, I have to get out as soon as possible sort of things. I mean, it was, it was a great place to grow up in hindsight, but I went to a ski academy in Vermont for okay. freestyle skiing. Oh, nice. Because I could not imagine bigger mountains than Vermont. And so I'm like, I'm going straight to the big ones. And yeah. then after that, it was like, I need to take the the next step. Cool. And so Westminster here in Salt Lake. Okay. Yeah. What sort of degree? Economics and liberal arts using that real hard right now aren't you yeah i mean <laughs> college was definitely like a, a an end in itself for me more than it was a means to an end you know like i needed to get out west mm-hmm. but i was a an academic person okay and it was like that was my that was my option to do it that way you know yeah and but i was able to be you know a full-time student and still ski seven days a week six days a week at westminster the snow is right there mm. <laughs> what period of time was that uh i graduated from westminster in 2010 okay so i kind of thought i'd be out here for a little bit and it like you know when i'm like checking the boxes senior year of high school where i want to go to college it's like salt lake checks all these boxes at the time but i didn't expect them to still be checked 14 years later yeah <laughs> Right, I was like, I, I assumed I would be gone by now, but so so, so from the sort of let's say two thousand six ish through, like, so so you've seen um, the Wasatch become Los Angeles. Yeah, I think I've been here long enough to see it. I was definitely part of it, but I was here just to actually see the big change. Yeah, right? sure. Which is it's it's shocking. I mean, I remember one of the last days I went ski touring would have been. Uh, well, it would have been a little bit later than that, but it was like, it was a Monday and my partner and I were on top of the coal pit head wall mm. and there were nine other people up there. And I was like, this is one of the harder places to get to in the range. Sure. And it's a Monday 
And granted, conditions are good. This is going to be great. But don't you all have jobs? <laughs> like, <laughs> and like if I, you moved here in 95, it's like, oh, all those darn people that moved here in 96. If you moved here you, in 2006, it's like, all those people that moved here in 2006, right? And yeah, yeah, of course. Right. And I mean, yeah. it. I, I certainly feel like I was part of a wave that came here mm-hmm. in 2006, but I don't. Maybe those waves are every year. I don't know. And you know, I feel I saw, like we have those waves in Jackson too. I think yeah. so, right? Like, because yeah. it's been really similar up there, hasn't it? Just with, mm-hmm. like, I, well, even in the early '80s when I first went out there to go skiing, there was, you know, on a good day when it was open, there was a line to get into Corbett. Right. It's yeah. true, but it's probably bigger now. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> that said, no one was entering via a backflip or a double backflip. <laughs> or a double backflip. <laughs> yeah. Back. Or a double backflip. Exactly. Yeah, back. <laughs> so some things have changed. <laughs> I mean, as people approach the entry, I guess it's just more entertaining to watch now <laughs> than it used to be. Oh, it's but, entertaining, for sure. Yeah. And it's been a really good winter up there. It's been amazing. I mean, very deep winter. And I don't, I mean, of late, I have not really been enjoying winter. I usually prefer the sun and running around on dry trails. But yeah. January was all time for snowboarding. All time. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, every year, more and more people. More and more people in the backcountry, more and more people in the wilderness. I think you could have just stopped at more and more people. Just more and more people on the planet. Mm. Yeah. Which, so before we started talking and went off on all these other (laughs) tangents that were not recorded earlier, one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about since, for sure, Brody, you are involved, Kelly, I'm just going to say to some degree, um, with the concept of conservation and stewardship mm-hmm. which kind of came up just that the uh, yesterday when Kelly and I were talking about the like the the establishment of the national parks um, as a, a something that 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 created like a a general conscious consciousness about wilderness and public land I think in the United States Um now, I mean, especially here in Utah, let's just say we are in the midst of, or maybe it's over now, um, where a particular section of Southern Utah was designated as wilderness or protected public land. Um, think initially by Clinton, mm-hmm. I want to say, right? And then expanded tail end of uh, Barack Obama's presidency. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then something happened <laughs> and, uh, and the, the boundary shrank again. And maybe it's just because I'm not in the sort of outdoor industry or whatever anymore. Um, I feel like the, that consciousness about the utility of public land and protecting it not only now but in the future so that I mean, we don't ruin everything. Um, I I feel like the consciousness has sort of waned in a period of time for some reason. Please tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I don't. I I think if you were to look at it as if you could look at it in a vacuum, maybe it hasn't, but it has because it's so tied into other political issues right like in in a vacuum like most people are like yes like public lands wild the sense of wilderness like those things matters yeah but it's it's all too integrally tied to other things i think yeah that i 
there is the political part for 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 sure which i think though is is largely affected by social sort of relation like social i'm just going to say activity i don't know the relationship that that people have or don't have with it and how they view wilderness let's say that you know we don't that that many people who have access to it it's on a limited basis and since they're passing through their wilderness experience they're less just a, maybe a horrid generalization less likely to take care of it while they're there than people who consistently visit the public land, the wilderness areas and that kind of thing and notice those changes and notice the impact that they Mm -hmm. have and want to be able to come back the next year or five years later and not see it horribly, you know, sort of overrun. And, and so, and so my feeling is, yes, there's the political aspect, obviously, and the sort of mm-hmm. trash it and move on attitude that we, that the state of Utah has often had. Mm. Um, uh, but I feel like there's a lot of um, social influence that has to do with, I mean, we live it and we see it all the time. So we, so it's easy to access. Right. And not just because it's the Wasatch and it's there or whatever, um, but but because we've developed the skills to access it. And then people who haven't developed those skills, I mean, there was a guy in uh, up in the Northwest at a certain period of time, guy who started MSR, I think, Larry Penberthy, and he was he was an advocate for actually paving trails oh my God. in the backcountry so that... To increase approachability, I assume. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that, yeah. you know, maybe non-ambulatory people could actually enjoy the public land as well. Because it is a lot of times like the the the, the more um, interesting places to go are inaccessible to people who haven't looked after their health and fitness. It's the right. e-bikes argument, right? Mm, mm, yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah. you know, so we have a privilege, a number of privileges that allow us to see these places. and But accessibility is, is the first thing that I think people look at. Yeah, and there's something called LWCF, which is Land and Water Conservation Fund, which okay. funds all sorts of public lands throughout the throughout the country, and it's not just like the Wasatch National Forest, you know, yeah. but it's it's the town park that has like a playset in it, sort of thing. And there's one of L, there's an LWCF funded public land in every county in the country. Wow, and it has recently been ripped apart and now it's being proposed that it's permanently funded blah 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 but when you look at accessibility issues like i think we typically we in this room typically look at like the wasatch like if you can't get into wasatch it might be hard to appreciate real wild spaces but Mm -hmm. there's there's green open space in every county in the the country you know being funded by the government in order to allow people to see these places and when you're looking at it being stripped of its funding or something like that, it's easy to think that people won't see these places. And I saw a stat this week that was the average kid is now seeing a screen for over seven hours a day and spending four to seven minutes of unstructured time outside on oh a given God. day. See, this is why I wrote that book. Right. Which and Brody was actually yeah one of, one of uh, my friends who pushed me to finish this children's book, which was about like not having access to the outdoors anymore 
And who was looking at a screen all the time? Not me, the kid in the book. The right? kid in the book. It's yeah. like he lives in a in a cement box, and all he does is stare at various screens until. It sounds dystopian and horrible. Is but it's actually and reality. And it's real. Is and it's it? reality. I know it's, <laughs> I know it's real, which right. is kind of. But Kelly, is there a happy ending? I mean, yeah. In in in, in my world and in my view, there's always hope, right? Nice. It might, you know, we might need to get through the destruction of the majority of the population of like, you know, humanity on the earth in order to get there. But like, yeah, I feel like there's always like light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, and that's right? the story of the book. I haven't yeah. seen it because you haven't brought me a copy. Oh God, I didn't know you should have brought a book. I should have brought a copy. Um, um, yeah, there, you, there is a happy ending for the kid. Told me about it mm-hmm. before. And it was actually kind of cool via social media and that sort of thing to see it come Mm. Yeah. To see you, okay, finish it and then finally. It, it, yeah, finally. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, go into the post office all the time. Like, uh-huh. ha, ha, ha. The good yeah. news is you finished it. The bad news is I get you to finish go mail it. it. <laughs> yeah, doing all of the distribution myself, <laughs> which is kind of fun because I, I, every book I had like a personal touch and they're all signed, but like, perfect. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I went through almost 500 copies already and nice. that's just since December. And um, yeah, but, uh, I mean, no, like the, the book. Okay, let's pimp it. How do we find it? Um, it's on my website, <laughs> kellyhalpin.com. All right. Um, that's the only place I have it available right now online. Okay. It's uh, available in some local shops in Jackson right now. But uh, yeah, for uh, for the majority of uh, buyers, yeah, kellyhalpin.com. All right. And it, it's there. And I will send it to you. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Or you could hand deliver it next time. I mean, I'll wait <laughs> for, the, for the personal touch. I will definitely hand deliver um, it next time. I but read that's a, a, that's a really interesting thing, though, that like that amount of screen time balanced, you know, seven hours of screen versus a maximum of seven minutes of out exposure to like outside. Mm. That fundamentally changes what people think is important absolutely and that, uh, later affects political issues yeah for sure if you don't grow up caring about like if you didn't grow up playing with trees like or playing you know climbing trees or like looking at frogs and ponds or i don't know picking apples outside like whatever then you don't care about those things because they were not a part of your childhood they didn't become a part of who you are maybe you this know? is a devil's advocate maybe not so i think the same thing because i grew mm-hmm. up playing with the frogs i grew up looking at the trees and i read an essay recently that said so if you, you say that's first person experience with nature, playing with the frogs yourself, mm-hmm. and then there's second person experience with nature being you follow Kelly on Instagram and you see her playing with frogs. This essay was arguing that that second degree experience can be as valuable in many ways as that first degree. And this wow. was specifically targeting like, um, I think they were measuring like pretty much how much you care about wild places. Okay. And they were saying that that can be maintained through that second person experience, which I, it's hard I, for me to believe because I had the first yeah, person Yeah, I have to experience. agree with you. Like I cannot imagine how like if that was taken away from my childhood, right. I wouldn't care about turtles as much. Right. I mean, I used to have pet turtles. I used to go out to the ponds and like release them in the wild. Like and like having that, you know, physical connection with nature, like playing in the mud as a kid. Like, I don't know how you can replace that. I don't know either. <laughs> And my sense, like I was in a conversation sometime recently where the concept, and I think it might have been with Anson Fogel, um, mm. and we were talking about the the fact that um, a lot of people's relationship with the national park is via their their idea or their notion that it is an amusement park. I mean, I see that in Jackson. People are like, where are the grizzly bears? We want to see them. Like, who? where do they go at yeah, night? Yeah, what time were they fed? Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's like, what? 
yeah yeah I mean, like, I, 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 it's like for no people answer. who like grew up with like grew up like with you know the privilege of these wild spaces it, it doesn't even like register as like well, i'm sorry what right. yeah like the the, ho- the more horrible thing is to see the bear in the cage exactly which like, is usually where it ends like, up if it comes in contact with people or, yeah, or too dead. much or it gets yeah it is uh which is why more and more people seeing them can lead to that, of course, exactly. which is why this aspirational, if you were to divide it in, into like aspirational and inspirational, right? Like mm-hmm. if if there's more of this aspirational side, like you don't need to go see the bear in Grand Teton National Park. Kelly will do that for you and relay that information to you through a book, through social media, whatever. Okay. The argument was that that can make you care about the bear. That can make you care about Grand Teton National Park right there. I, I know, I'll, I'll say... I'll be the devil's devils mm, there you, go. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, of, of, um, that's well and good for the bear, for the panda, for all of the animals that, you know, human beings have a net, you know, th- think are cute or have like a, a the, the sort of strange identifying relationship with sure. doesn't do shit for the turkey. Or, right. you know, like a wild turkey or something else that you don't like, a, you know, what's an, a, a, an animal that you don't really identify with, you know, the porcupine or something, right. something that's not as um, held up by society as this cute a, thing, as right? a cute thing yeah. or something that was maybe worshipped in the past, sure. and, you know, part of a spiritual practice of some kind. Um, uh, and, and so I think we end up, I, I think part of the, 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 the risk of the second person, I mean, I, I would dearly love if this were true. <laughs> that 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 by having the second person experience can drive someone to let's just say vote in a particular way or care about in a particular thing or end up in a on a particular path in life if if that is true i hope it doesn't um that that, that those that the the areas which are not necessarily as beautiful like like if you think like oh, i'm gonna go to the desert and mm-hmm. okay i'm gonna see some red rock and there's gonna be these arches and like towers and stuff like that well death valley is equally as beautiful in its own right mm-hmm. but when you go out there and walk around you're just like well where's the arch where's the ta- where's the cool stuff you know this it's not on it, a license plate huh it, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and and so i so when i think about zones like that which are not as I mean, they're they're super powerful when you are out in them. They are not as visually attractive as the delicate arch, for example. If, right. Since we're in Utah, um, and, and it's like, yeah, I want to protect the bears, mm-hmm. but those other animals, I don't give a fuck about. And if I don't give a fuck about them, then maybe I don't care about their habitat. All right, because you're missing out on them. the entire like relationship of an ecosystem if you're like seeing a very you know, skewed a, perspective or a very if you're seeing tunnel vision, you know, like just the grizzly bear. It's like, well, actually, like let's talk about the white bark pines that feed the grizzly bears like let's talk about the clark's nutcrackers that distribute the seeds from the white bark pines like you're missing out on a lot of information or you know what did people care about when australia was on fire a few months ago the koalas, koalas. yeah so there's the thing where it's like all this money no one's yeah kangaroos kind of you know you spend a little bit of time down there you kind of realize like yeah they're kind of like pests sometimes you know but um but they probably like if there was yeah, I want to contribute to the koala bear fund, but the kangaroo fund maybe got less. And then all of the species of snakes and insects and mm-hmm. other animals that allow those, like you said, Kelly, that ecosystem to exist. Okay. Hopefully there was some trickle down, I guess. Yeah, and I'm, okay. and I'm, it's great that, you know, the koala is the face of save the continent. 
Um, yeah, I'm glad that some people had a connection to at least you know something yeah. powerful over there. But like, let's like let's talk about the eucalyptus trees, which that is the only thing that the koalas eat, and those are like, gone. Yeah. And then all of the other creatures live in those trees and the entire system around that, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a no hope. I mean, I'm a closet optimist, but I, I would like to think that that there will be a better there. There can be a better outcome <laughs> if you know. But I'm also, uh, according to the cover of our zine, I'm in a fist fight <laughs> with human nature. So <laughs> I also kind of recognize the um, the potential dangers. And then also is coming, you know, w- looking at uh I was talking with Corey Rich and when at, at the, at the Banff book festival, and he gave this uh, photographic exhibition up there and gave a little talk and on this photo walk that I did with him. And then he came in here um, and we had a little podcast with him, but he was talking about this. Like he goes, Oh yeah. Like the most sold photo in recent times is this picture of Stephen Koch snowboarding this glacier on Kilimanjaro that now no longer exists or no, it's mm-hmm. not Kilimanjaro. It's the, um, uh, the, 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 one of the other, the seven summit that's, down Karsten's pyramid yeah, Karsten's yeah. or whatever and so now that glacier doesn't exist anymore so people mm-hmm. have been buying that picture from him to illustrate as an illustration of sort of the climate change thing this is right. you know kind of a curious example but having come from ice climbing alpine climbing thing and seeing these zones that you know now seeing photographic evidence of of these places and I'm like well I've these resources upon which I express myself are disappearing or I found myself, I did these activities and, mm-hmm. and, um, and I kind of wonder, I mean, yeah, it's been a pretty good snow year here in the Wasatch, but there, it seems to have certainly changed in the last 20 years. Have you seen Chamonix this winter? What's going on there? Um, only <laughs> photographs and, you know, via, you know, friends that are still there and climbing and that kind of stuff. Like, wow. Like they haven't had winter yet. Yeah. It just like didn't come. It's like what happened in Tahoe for five years in a row, right? Just right. like winter, it just missed the winter season for five years. I just saw an article. I didn't, I didn't read it, so I can't really quote it. But it said like winter in the Alps is like going to be over soon, altogether or something. Anyone else see that? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you know, you know how foundational, according to your books, like the Alps were to your climbing. Yeah. Imagine if they that resource wasn't as reliable to the next generation of climbers. I mean, it's not. Yeah. It's not, not imagine that. You know, yeah. like they just don't have that resource anymore. So do they just adapt? I mean, the European model is just to adapt, right? Like they yeah. are taking their base lodges and moving them higher up the mountain because they have four thousand vertical meters or whatever of, to move of them relief. up. Yeah. Right. We we you can't move a lodge halfway up Park City and still have a ski resort, right? right totally. Yeah. And that's what we're looking at, which is why like the adaptation model is not as effective in the US. Sure. Yeah. What is what can be effective here, do you think? I mean I mean I'd voting. <laughs> I mean you Just know, in case that was too quiet for the listeners, <laughs> voting. <laughs> I mean, you know, like not eating your hamburger is not going to make the difference and not ordering oh. that thing off Amazon is not going to make the difference. And I think focusing on that is is misguided focus. Like if, if you're going to have that attention, you can't you, it's it's a fallacy to say, like, you know, if, if you have attention one place, it needs to be somewhere else. But if you're going to put that attention towards something the fossil fuel industry is winning, if you're putting it toward the fact that you're eating meat or you're you know, yeah. mail ordering something. If, if you're focusing on one aspect of it, then somebody else, then, then your attention is not elsewhere. And you're focusing and on the 0.0001% instead of the majority, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
But is it, do you think the attraction of doing something like that, of you know maybe changing diet um, or choosing to actually... Well, how do I get stuff if it doesn't come from Amazon? Why fuck? <laughs> like, like or, or choosing not to, you know, use those mechanisms or whatever. Um, do you think that's attractive in a sense because it's something that people feel like they can actually do as opposed to some insurmountable, t- you know, insurmountable appearing um, barrier between them and actually having some impact? Right. Like the actionable things are harder to come by. When you say vote, it's like my vote's not going to matter. So how is this even actionable? Right. I, or, uh, or or participating in, you know, an organization, you know, um, like the LWCF F. Um, or Protect Our Winners or something like that. I, I mean, I think a lot of people see it as just like, well, I'm just going to I can push that rock up the hill, but it's just going to roll back down, you know, like and then but here's the thing I can do. I can be vegan. Right. You know, yeah. or whatever. Which but, is why, um, um, from what I know, like the direct effects of being vegan or whatever are not what make the difference, but it's the behavioral shift that's associated with that. Because yes. if you're inclined mm-hmm. to use the metal straw or be vegan or not mail order stuff, you are probably inclined to make other more meaningful differences, regardless of how you put a, a definition of the word meaning. Yes. You, you're you making other changes in your life because the behavioral stuff is adding to like the other elements. Be- and you're yeah. sensitized to it in a way. Exactly. Um, that, and I, I actually think that's, that's really good. I mean, the fitness space, you know, we just, a lot of times we talk about different recovery mechanisms and I'm always mm-hmm. like, yeah, it, the science doesn't support the fucking ice bath. But if someone's willing to take an ice bath post effort for recovery, I know they're willing to do all of these mm. other easier things right. because they had to pass through those to get to the point of lowering themselves into some like 45 degree water for however many minutes or whatever. So I think that's actually a pretty an interesting indicator of overall behavior like um, I'm willing to bet not like, too many vegetarians are voting for our current president. <laughs> Possible. You're right. Right. Yeah. I, mean, like, yeah. I, I just feel like yeah. I feel like one kind of leads into the next, mm-hmm. which yeah. is why it can start with that metal straw or whatever that doesn't make a difference. But in the long run, I think it I think it can. Yeah, I think it's that, just your awareness. And like, you know, like I actually talked about this the first time I was in here um, when I read the book like Ishmael. It's about um people who take from the earth or like if you're a part of the earth or if you're like against the earth you know and I think if you can establish like what your relationship is like you know um like if you are a part of the earth then you care more about the earth because you're a part of a system as opposed to just taking from the earth like you know the earth is and kind of being outside of it and and considering that it's here for me exactly and then that changes your entire relationship with everything just if you go back to that super foundational belief and like your relationship with the earth you know, and but I don't the, know. but that 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 kid with the seven hours of screen time, what's mm. you know that's in the concrete box, like right. the protagonist in your book, yeah. um, how do they make contact with the earth? Right. Well, that's to what f- sort of you know care about right. it in a yep, way. Second hand. Like, <laughs> yeah. Second hand. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're lucky, first hand. And yeah. but I don't think if we expect the majority of people. If we need the majority of people to have this firsthand experiences to act responsibly, right. that means Los Angeles and the Tetons oh, are going to be blown out, right? Yeah, so totally, it's like I would they, like we can't to support think, that anymore. Exactly. Like, there's not enough wild space anymore for that. For everyone to have firsthand for experiences, everyone, yeah. And thus, like I hope secondhand experience is effective because if we need right. the majority of people to have these experiences, but we can't give them the place to have these experiences. 
they're going to need to be able to have them on an iPad, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it's, that crazy? My we girlfriend has this world. concept that we need to, we have like, um, I forget what the word is, but like she'll, she says we have, oh, like sacrificial public lands. Yeah. Like, you know what? Zion is blown out. Let everyone go to Zion. Let them have that firsthand experience. If you're a real wall climber, deal with it or go somewhere else. But yeah. we, we need to sacrifice Zion or, you know, insert whatever other place in order to offer those experiences to the masses. Yeah. She has a far more positive outlook because I used to, <laughs> I used to call it the outhouse theory, <laughs> which is, I mean, it's similar. I'm like, I, I loved the fact when I was climbing that all of the mixed and ice routes existed above the I-80 or 70 in Vail. I loved it because it kept all the shit in one place. It's like everyone can go there. It's easy access. You can express yourselves or whatever. That just means all I got to do is walk somewhere for three miles and there's not going to be anybody there. So, yes, sacrifice this particular zone for people to have the experience. But it was I was it was I was only talking about it with my own self-interest that sort of heart. Like I wanted to be able to go somewhere where no one was. Mm -hmm. And all you need to do to do that is go to Cody and walk a little bit which is still the case <laughs> which is still the case yeah, oh, yeah like, that I mean, one didn't go away but i but I, I do i think you're right in some sense that but it's unfortunate that the sacrificial zones are maybe gonna be some of the most beautiful right ones that exist yeah. right i mean my the outhouse theory has changed a little bit for me this year because it used to be like i don't know what you guys are talking about los angeles maybe the trailhead is the parking lot's full and the first mile is full mm-hmm. but I go ski touring and I don't see anybody every day. The last year or two, yeah, you're on top of coal pit, which you can't go much further and expect to not see people. And there's nine people on top of coal pit, right? Yeah, and I mean, the next thing is nine people on top of Lone Peak. Exactly. Right? And like, it's like, and then it's over. And so if everyone's above I-70 ice climbing and that's where they're all stuck, that's great. That's attracting a hundred people. 10 people then are motivated enough to move on to the next spot and one person is motivated enough to move to the to the lone peak or whatever right, right? and so but if that just keeps increasing there's always going to be it's like maybe the crowd is just a little bit behind you but they're still going to catch up eventually mm-hmm. like that small percentage of people yeah. that are going to stay with it so by increasing access and increasing visitorship we are going to get that small trickle down of that 0.1% that is actually going to become a real wall climber because they went to Zion with their parents and mm-hmm. rode the bus and looked up at it with 50 other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And right. then maybe that's the person that becomes the, you know, that ends up with a respected voice right. and enough sort of momentum or juice or whatever you want to call it to actually affect some change in the future. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I don't see any benefit from preventing access. I mean, I put my, like, myself in that boat 100%. My family would like load up in the minivan and drive from Ohio in a van with 300,000 miles of it to get to Yosemite for six days in the summer with no air conditioning, you know, and like putting the heat on while we're going uphill so we don't overheat, overheat the vehicle. The car. Yep. <laughs> and, and get there and we are just among the crowds, right? We are the crowds. It's not yeah. like, hey, look at all the traffic around here. It's like, oh no, we are the traffic right. around here. Yeah. And then fast forward 20 years and I'm... I've trickled down to the point where like, oh, no, no, I really care now and I want to protect these places. Most of the other people in those cars 20 and years ago. Fortunately, I didn't get a reservation for a campsite in Yosemite last year. <laughs> so I can't actually go. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So I'm no longer part of the problem. <laughs> I mean, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it, I'm, 
sorry to hijack that but no it's <laughs> so true it's true it's very true <laughs> but it's kind of the national park thing is is a is a mechanism to give people that first person experience um th- which ultimately which ultimately if you've once you've had it and you've decided i don't want to have it with you know 10,000 of my cl- you know closest friends mm-hmm. <laughs> um you look beyond you, national you parks. Look beyond, yeah, you look beyond the national parks, and then and then, w- you know, what is there? And it's true, it. there's a lot beyond the national parks. But like you said, it's unfortunate that a lot of the really good stuff is still, it's you know, still, mm-hmm. there's no hidden half dome somewhere else in the country, right? Like there yeah. was, it just ended up underwater. That's right. Actually, yeah, I've <laughs> heard about that. The Hetch Hetchy. Oh right, right, right okay, you sure. know, yeah. like that whole zone that was like you know a little Yosemite yeah, that is sure. now underwater, yeah. you know, which pro- might have made sense. I mean, there was a couple of dams that apparently made more sense at the time than <laughs> some of us think they do now. <laughs> I would love to see that one drain. Mm, yeah, yeah. Sam. What's the possibility of? I mean, just watching what. Uh, Doug Tompkins and Chris McDivitt did down south. You know, basically acquiring all this land and then negotiating with the Chilean government to turn it over as long as they turned it into a national park and protected it in a certain way. Um, is there some hope for something like that here in the sense of like, you know, what what would, what's, what is a local citizen's alternative? Like how could, how could, Grants, you know, the what's going on with Grand Staircase and Bears Ears, how could that be changed from the perspective of like using that from the bottom up, not from the top down? Yes, exactly. Like, is there is there a is there a way? Do you think? I mean, we once Bears Ears got shrank by eighty five percent, right? We we saw the increase in people that were going there to visit and people wanted to go visit these national monuments grand staircase and Escalon, and yeah. they wanted to get down there and we saw that there was an eerie there was a tendency to have irresponsible behavior down there because people simply weren't informed about how you visit such delicate landscapes mm-hmm. yeah and so very much bottom up since the government wasn't stepping up to create a visitor center because they knew they were going to shrink it we said we're going to create our own visitor center which is how the education center came to be because we raised uh, however much money a half million dollars to create an education center in bluff right and blanding bluff whatever they're same thing in my mind and (laughs) and it is now there to try to educate people because it's like hey it's not coming from the top down so we need to build it from the bottom up and that was i feel like one of the only times i've seen a successful bottom-up campaign right that's that's i didn't know that happened that's really remarkable yeah really cool two years ago we did um a vertathon in the wasatch i guess people are kind of doing it all over but mostly in the wasatch we are like we were trying to raise a million dollars by climbing a million feet or something like that like we all went and did fifteen thousand foot days okay um and people were pledging toward this bears ears education center which has now been built in the old bar in town um, wow. and is is to try to not decrease the number of people coming and not necessarily increase the num- number of people coming, but it was getting so much attention in the media because it was being shrunk that we needed to educate people when you come to a delicate landscape like this, this is how you do it because odds are you haven't been anywhere like this before, right? Yeah. And um, 
And you don't know. Yeah. How could you know? Right. If you, if you hadn't been there before is, and that spot was chosen for it. Um, is that the general access point? Yeah. For... It's because it's where um, Josh Ewing's group, whatever it was called, is, was based out of there. And I, I think it's, I okay. think it's where I'm assuming the tourists that are flying into Vegas or wherever they're coming from are accessing it from. Okay. Yeah. I, but that was a bottom up thing and that yeah. worked. Yeah. So it is. So it's, it's possible. I think how so. many, how many activists, like how many people for the Vertathon, like is it like less than a hundred people made that thing happen? I mean, oh, it was like, like six people. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. It, then plus obviously the country, the pledge. Right. The the and then it's like we all we, we raised a hundred thousand dollars climbing and skiing that day and then, you know, I think the North Face came in, it's like, all right, we're gonna double that. Okay. Um but it gained some attention. There was a video and it was magazine articles and the news was out there covering us, you yeah. know, and like it it was such like an organic thing because we we were completely separate from the education center being built. We didn't know okay. this guy. We were no part of it. We heard he was doing a fundraiser and we were like, What can we do? So we went and did this Vertathon and we were pretty much like Hey guy, here's a check. <laughs> wow, We're, we can't feel our legs, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's um, gonna be a while before we recover. But totally, here's a thing. That was our first ski day of like 2017 or whatever. It was like just going up and down Brighton in ski boots that we haven't worn for eight months. For eight months, <laughs> yeah. 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 Hello, yeah. blisters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I used to call them the super alpine heels. Because <laughs> 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 go to Alaska and you haven't been like. It, and live in your boots for that long right. and there's a cost <laughs> that stopped me from i i think i did like 12 at the resort just going up and down and then i had to go do some west ridge laps because yeah. i couldn't, couldn't, couldn't wear the boots anymore, anymore. <laughs> it was miserable <laughs> i mean it's a great idea and and limited in its scope because you're only six people in, right. in, in a sense but but just to take it upon yourself to actually do something and i think that's like the for me the sort of motivating piece of that is like oh well they decided that it was worth it and that they could actually have an impact rather than feeling it but then rather than saying oh my vote was not going to matter anyway you know because and i don't think it was about people participating in that we weren't inviting other people to participate in that it's about both the message of having done it of course we all got the word out there but then it was about the education center being built it wasn't about the stupid vertathon you know and it got built and it's it's hopefully you know affecting people what happens when you let's say have some I'm just going to say outdoor personalities, climbers, skiers, people who use the outdoors, go to um, a meeting with politicians. What's the question? What happens there? Yeah. Like, what's the, like, I feel like you've been back east a few times. Mm -hmm. To D.C., right? To to D.C. for, you know, with the Protect Our Winters project, maybe some other ones that I didn't, like, dive deep enough. But Mm -hmm. um, do you have the sense that the ears are big or small. Yeah, but they're politicians. They're really good at giving you the sense that the ears are big. Yeah, 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 (laughs) Um, sure. But I think walking in there with the credentials of the people that we're walking in there with Mm -hmm. creates a better reception than walking in there with people without them. Sure. You know, I mean, I think, you know, we like especially Protector Winter specifically that you're referring to, they, they make sure to always send someone with an Olympic medal. Okay. Right, like, and that person always has it in their pocket, and like the politician always takes a selfie with it. <laughs> 
and they're like, yeah, what are you guys here for again? But this is a this is heavier than I thought, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you guys here for? Okay, um, but it somehow the cynical part of me imagined exactly that. <laughs> like. But I mean, it is. It's still. It's still politics. These people know we do. They do know what we're here for. They do already yeah. have their very own developed thoughts on it. However, do they know that the ski industry in Utah is a one point seven billion? Maybe not. You yeah. know, and so they might want to hear some of this stuff. So, um, we do they know that the outdoor retailer trade show brings this many right. people, fills this many beds, this much money, and maybe we ought to have it. Have it. <laughs> maybe that shouldn't have gone to. Um, Denver, <laughs> and that's that's where like their own political, you know, their whatever reelection or whatever gets in the way because they like to hear numbers. That's the first thing that we talk about. We not the first thing, but that's yeah. the most important thing we talk about is like the economics of it and the jobs of it, and and we we come with this information, right? And they're not expected to to know this stuff offhand, sure. And they they are receptive to it. They do listen to us. We usually get the the lawmakers, not their staffers, because of this the the people that we're bringing with us, you know, um, nice. they're like, Oh, this whole group of professional athletes is coming from across the country. Like I'll give it my 15 minutes today, you know? Yeah. And, and is that sort of a, like a general time frame, like how much you time you get in front of them is in my experience in DC going with the people that I go with, it always runs over. They're always giving, they say, all right, you guys have 15 minutes and an hour later, they're like, okay, I really need to get on the floor of the okay. Capitol now. They, they, they love good. it. I mean, they nice. are so receptive. They love the medals. They love the stories that, you know, I'll be telling them firsthand experiences with climate change that I saw in Svalbard or in wherever, right? And, yeah. and they want to hear these things. And maybe they're only hearing the Svalbard. Well, what is Svalbard? Tell me about it. Or maybe they're hearing the climate change part. That's where the but, bears are getting smaller, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, like they're, they are giving us their ear time and some and totally that's cool and i mean we have seen things that we can't directly relate to our visits or to our impacts but we will we've had experiences like we will go talk to representative so-and-so or senator so-and-so about a specific bill and then three days later they vote the way that we are asking them to vote on that bill and we're like i wonder if we had a small small part of some influence absolutely participatory politics imagine that (laughs) (laughs) um and so i mean that's why because I can't help. I, I need to ask you, like, yeah. when th- 30 years ago? Okay. Is that fair? The, like, the, the, I don't know what we were talking about. The, right, you right. I mean, talk, like, you want to talk about my second wife or you want to talk about, like, <laughs> when, when you were in, like, the meat of it, yeah. you didn't need to, I assume, focus half of your energy on making sure you can preserve these playgrounds in which you were operating. I should have. Oh, interesting. But I didn't... Um, it wasn't slapping you in the face, though, saying you need to, right? No, no. I mean, it, it, I mean, I, it, yeah, I was not conscious until later in, in, in a sense of like the, let's say the, the, the impact or the, the, like I couldn't see into the future because I wasn't looking. Like I'm only, and, and being you know, largely sort of driven by ego and ambition and that sort of thing. Like it, it wasn't on my radar. It was like, I need, this is, I'm very selfish and not looking outward in a way. Um, but if I look back now at some of the experiences that I had where things obviously changed, I mean, there was, uh, and it, but it wasn't progressive. And I always attributed it to a more seasonal kind of thing where my first season in the Alps was the fall fall of 1984 
was the best ice season I ever saw there. And it, w- it was an exceptional year. 85 was dry and warm. And that following winter when um, and there was a bunch of winters in a row where like stuff that used to freeze and form didn't, it came back. So it could be viewed as a more seasonal thing. At least sure. that's how I saw it as opposed to Good a, seasons, a bad general seasons. trend. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but there was a lot of periods where these like big high pressures had come in and just like, Oh, it's like summer. You get up out of the temperature inversion and it's like fucking summer up there. I mean, when, and I can't remember what year, I think it was, I'm just going to go with 1990 when, um, Christoph Profit, it might've been earlier when he soloed the, um, the, the Puderet Integral in winter, it was like real. it wasn't, it was a dry ascent, you know, it wasn't coming up on the conditions. It didn't take him like 33 hours. Like when he first soloed it in winter in 1983, like completely different experiences. Hmm. Um, and I, so I didn't, I didn't attribute, you know, those changes to anything beyond like good season, bad season or, but I was also a lot more focused on the shoulder seasons and which are less defined, which are less defined. Yeah. A little bit less defined, but also when like more ephemeral kinds of ice roots form, Hmm. like they're not there in the dead of summer because they're gone. They're not there in the dead of winter because it's too cold and and it's dry enough that, you know, moisture has sub that that came in the autumn sublimated away. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I didn't really notice, but the years that I was going to Alaska a lot, and watching the changes of like, oh, this, we used to be able to go directly up this glacier. Right. And now we can't. Or, um, you know, having, there there may be a possibility if you guys come early in the season, we can land you on the Tokositna if, you know, if you come later, it, and later means earlier and earlier in the year, or the Cahiltna airstrip shuts, you know, on the Southeast Fork shuts down or, you know earlier and earlier or whatever just but i wasn't conscious and unfortunately um i mean you weren't but, alone in that though not many people were conscious right like yeah i mean yeah. I, I i mean i would i would have said that you know yvonne was sure you know there were, there were visionaries who had been around longer than i had so maybe it was the duration you know the length of their experience their first person experiences with wilderness allowed them you know, that duration, that amount of exposure that they had allowed them to, to, to see it, the trend. Right. Whereas, I mean, because, I mean, they had to be sensitized to it. If, you know, if, um, Chouinard, uh, you know, saw what was in, in a very small way, saw what, you know, use of the rock as a resource in Yosemite by climbers, like, okay, I can project, I can see all of the piton scarring and I can project this out into the future. And I think what he did with environment was just like expand his vision, like from the very narrow, you know, piton scar, piton scar to the, you know, the planet, um, and, and wilderness in general. So I, I think there were, there were people, I mean, I grew up, um, with a picture in my dad's office of John Muir standing in Yosemite with Teddy Roosevelt and, um, my dad was a park ranger there, not the, you know, the environmentalist, you know, park ranger, but the federal cop. Um, <laughs> but still, like, he grew up in, you know, his his dad was uh, a ranger, 
he grew up in that. I mean, he was like, I, I had first person experience. I, mean, I was born in Yosemite National Park. So like, and lived there for two years, Mount Rainier for three before moving to Seattle. So I, I, I had that experience and I, you know, I should have become the environmental hmm. sort of champion. And I'm not saying it's not possible now. Um, but I, I used the resource and put very little back into it. The reason I ask is because, so, so kiss or kill, like changed my life. Right. And, and I, I read that and I see like how singularly focused you were. Yeah. And it's like almost this question of nature or nurture for me. It's like, is something wrong with me that I don't have that singular focus or is it more out of necessity that like, I dedicate, I, I like to say like, I dedicate half of my job, half of my career to mm -hmm. like trying to protect these places and the other half actually doing it. And I'm like, could I just be better if I didn't have to worry about protecting them? Would I, would I go crazy if I didn't have to? Cause all I would be focusing on climbing is climbing and skiing or I mean, do you see what I'm no, saying? No, like I, exactly. I absolutely. Like see this like saying. singular yeah. focus that I'm like so jealous of. It's like it's like an enviable thing to have that much energy on. And some, and I look at some skiers and climbers today, and they're still able to have that singular focus. But now it's almost viewed to, by me, at least, as irresponsible. Like if all you think about while you're climbing is climbing, like you're missing a big picture here, especially skiing, right? Like you're you're missing out. And I'm like, is that is that even possible to have now? But I think we nat naturally, I mean, in some ways we um consciously or unconsciously we exclude in order to uh, you know Succeed. achieve or just yeah. deal like in in life like i can't look at all of these other possibilities or or, or i just get overwhelmed maybe that i don't know what the, i don't know what the answer would be i mean i know that i could i couldn't behave in any other way when i was climbing um but it, that also, in you know, led me to uh, some people might say a more um, negative outlook. Um, like a lot of times, it was you know it was battle for me as opposed to you know a pleasurable experience. Um, and so I think it's I think it has to, a lot to do with temperament. I mean, could you have performed at that level if you weren't so singularly focused? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, at least, I mean, me personally, I couldn't. I mean, that's what I, I got from the book is like, no chance you could have. I, I felt yeah, like. But yeah, I, but, but I know, I have recognized other people that have. And I, I mean, I, I could maybe use, um, and, and I mean, I've met Ron Kauk in passing. Um, but I know that now sort of what he's involved in, just because some, guys that we had here on the podcast, the guys from that have this, the we move magazine in the UK did a really incredible podcast with Ron. And, you know, he's talking about taking people into the wilderness, introduce, giving them that first hand experience, um, not only to help change them in a positive way, but also to like become champions and advocates for the resources. And, um, and I look, you know, if I go back and, you know his history as an athlete i don't think that same sensitivity or awareness or like advocacy existed um until he matured enough that it could be possible <laughs> and it's and it's like uh, um and i think you know there are many like that 
in, in the sense that, yeah, the singular focus is the thing that got me the medal that now allows me to stand in front of the politician and right. get the 15 minutes to speak and potentially change. Um, that person's sort of mind behavior open, you know, it up, whatever. Um, I think it's admirable to like, I just blows me away. I mean, I would put maybe Rebecca Rush also in a similar sort of position as you, where she's doing these really incredible things, but she's also an advocate, not only for wilderness, but just like helping human beings behave better (laughs) in general. Like she spreads her energy and love. And it's not just the singular focus that maybe she had um, as a younger athlete. We refer like to our platforms a mm-hmm. lot, kind of like what you were saying is like my, your singular focus allowed you to get the medal, so to speak. Yeah. We get a lot of hate now on like, you talk about climate change, but you're traveling and like traveling is hands down what gives me my platform. Right. And yeah. I like to think that my drop in the bucket of traveling is more than offset by what I'm able to do with the platform that I have because of that travel. Right, with right. what you can share with others. Right. Yeah. That secondhand experience right. that you can't otherwise share. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when someone talks about travel and burning fossil fuel in order to do it or whatever, um, you know, in a critical way like that, yeah, you're using all these resources. And my response to many of those people, depending on who they are and what their social circumstances <laughs> are, I'm like, Talk to me about your two children. Right. Mm, that's what I want to say every time. <laughs> and and, and, I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm in a, kind of in a position like we have, you know, the, the sticker, our climate change sticker is actually bumper stickers. They should be printed and they might get delivered tomorrow or the beginning of next week. Wait, nonprofit stickers? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is, um, it's a basically a save the planet sticker and it's got the little family on the back. <laughs> <laughs> It has mom and dad, a cat, a dog, and two kids. Mm. The two kids and the cat are X'd out because we're not cat people. But you know, sorry, <laughs> sorry, cat people. But if you, it, but it just, but it comes up in discussion a lot of time. Oh, you should not eat meat because of the planet. You shouldn't drive. You know, do this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, okay, the single biggest, ha- you know, impact on resources it's is going to be more people. <laughs> it's not necessarily the behavior of those people. It's just the absolute the absolute quantity and then uh, um i mentioned this to kelly yesterday i was um watching a terence mckenna lecture from a while ago and he was talking about like he had um you know he had asked the mushroom because he's you know using psychedelics for you know spiritual research and mm-hmm. that kind of thing and he'd ask the mushroom like well what do we do about like saving the planet and this is like and this lecture was from the like 94 or something so he was thinking about this a long time ago comparatively um uh said like what are we going to do to save the planet and and he said and the mushroom told me every woman naturally bear one child and only one and he goes further down that road and starts thinking about like well yeah if if you mention that everybody's going to you know there's going to people are going to pile on and you know say all sorts of bad things about you but maybe the person that needs to hear it the person that's having five children um is going to be the one who's affected by it and he hypothesizes this you know thing where if you met a woman in bangladesh pakistan india any place who says i want to have thousand one thousand children you might look at that from our perspective in the west and go man that's super irresponsible but those thousand one thousand children 
in those three places that I just mentioned will have less impact on the environment than one child here in the United States. Wow. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and, you know, I haven't, you know, mm. backed up this, you know, the research or, you know, chased it to see if that comment is true. But McKenna is a very smart individual, um, highly educated and experienced. And so I'm going to I'm just going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But even if it was 500 to one. Sure. Still, mm -hmm. it's a it, it. This is. This is how, you know, I think this is one of the ways like the most effective way to reduce one's impact or footprint. It's not, and I don't want to say don't use the metal straw. And I don't want to say, like, don't do all of these things, but understand the, the true impact of the behavior of, of travel. I mean, I would have to agree with you that, yes, you travel and you expend resources in order to do so, but that the impact that you have by telling the stories, by bringing back the, you know, the, the ideas, the imagery, the, the, you know, just the concept from those places that you have traveled to, um, as inspirational and aspirational sorts of messages, I think that's far more powerful than the actual impact. That being said, I noticed something that Brittany posted the other day about contributing the same value as the price of her airline ticket to um, one of the environmental projects uh, uh, for this particular trip that she was on. Cause she's saying, look, I, I fly a hundred, like a hundred thousand miles a year for my job. And this is the way that I'm going to do. And she was basically asking via social media saying Delta, Hey, why would, why don't you, uh, you know, I bought the ticket but for $300 and then I put the $300 donation into this fund. Would you match my contribution? Hmm. And then, you know, I scrolled past because that's what we do with social media. <laughs> Don't you just announce that they're going to be the first carbon neutral airline though for 2020, I think. Fantastic. They're going for it. And you, wow. can just, you can just check, offset my trip right then and there too. I nice. mean, it's, it's huh. I, I like to think that like the, you know, we're not going to, practice eugenics we're not going to no it's like these behavioral things we can't discourage people from traveling or from eating meat or whatever and expect any positive outcomes i think and that's why i think these actionable items that are so much easier to check off these like tangible things you can do not eating meat whatever yeah those are i i just i can't help but think we need to again encourage them because they lead to a bigger thing but we definitely can't con condemn people for living the lifestyle that they've been raised a lifestyle that they know instead i think we can encourage them to look toward like bigger systematic changes right like yeah. traveling shouldn't mm -hmm. be as bad on the environment you shouldn't have to feel bad for yeah. traveling i know that we've had this conversation before like i don't know years ago or something about that like how can you how can you be a good ambassador or steward for like the outdoors if you do all this travel and um you said like i think you told me brody like we're not going to stop being humans you know or something along those lines, you know, like we're, we're still going to be what we are, but like we can do it better or smarter, or at least with more awareness. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I encourage people to travel and not, even if they don't come back with these stories and these inspirational ideas, it's like, if they come back caring themselves, mm -hmm. I think that should more than offset any travel. I, I just, it, it's, it's like an, it's like a non issue in my mind, which is problematic because I need to be able to articulate it better. Yeah. But in my mind, it's like everyone go travel, please see the world and learn to care about it. And, and see other, I mean, I, I would say that travel is, um, 
absent any relationship to the climate or the environment, mm-hmm. just get out of where you're from. Sure. Oh, totally. Talk it changes to your perspective on anything. And, and, th- and you will become sensitized to these other issues. Yes. Because I think in the bubble, in the, you know, if, if I'm always looking at the same four walls, same four streets, same four square miles, same 400 square miles, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is, if that is the totality of my experience, then I simply cannot be bothered to care about what's out there. And it's super easy for me to be swayed by some, you know, snake oil person that comes through town that tells me what it's, you know, what I should be thinking about what's over there. Absolutely, man. That's a great and, point. And mm-hmm. so tra- I think travel of any kind would benefit not only, you know, everyone socially, but I think ultimately, you know, the planet as an organism and a whole. Yeah. If people just saw more of it. Right. And interacted and realized like, I mean, when, um, and I've been able to travel to some pretty cool places because of the passport that I had and the financial werewolf that I had and that sort of thing. Um, and there are other people who've, who've done e- even more. And just, you know, watching, I guess it was two years ago, maybe it's three now, um, when Brittany went on her climbing trip to Iran and basically said, look, I'm not going to let the news people, you know, the news services tell me what this place is like. I'm going to go see for myself. And um, I brought her to, down to give a presentation we talking group. Brittany Griffith? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and and to hear some of these stories of different places that she had been travel, you know, as a, as a, just because she's traveling, I think she's been to fifty plus different countries. Yeah. You know, she's one of the most well. She's probably the most well traveled person I know. I think for sure for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and to c- come back from Iran or come, or Jordan or Yemen or places like that where you wouldn't normally go and where you have a very most people if they don't travel or even if their access to those places only via the news or whatever um you have a really specific attitude about that place or if you know like all of my friends you know apart from Brittany and a couple of climbers all of my friends who've been in Yemen were there for a different job yeah. mm-hmm. you know and so that has a you know a, a different flavor to it. you know if they're bringing back their first hand experience and I'm getting it sort of secondhand it's from you know a military and intelligence context and so it's different for me and then I hear Brittany talk about you know the exact same place and I, I don't you know, I don't see it as any different place. It's just like, okay, what, you know, what motivates you to, to travel and go to these places, I think is, um, well, it has a strong effect on the story that you bring back, but, um, it, but traveling in general, um, let's just say that maybe that's the key to resolving the climate issue. I have this internal battle kind of, cause as like my, the evolution of my trips has changed. It used to be like I would buy a one-way ticket to South America, take a backpack and a ski bag, and I would both meet the people, experience the culture, so to say, yeah. get some skiing in, go back to culture, get some skiing in. And that kind of changed to these more defined like expedition-style trips where it's like go there, don't speak the language, don't meet the people, go to the mountains, talk to the guy you know driving your horse 
get to the mountains, get dropped off, eat your freeze-dried food, yeah. speak your language, climb your objective, get out of there, don't experience it. And now it's it seems to almost be coming full circle where it's like it's it's not about the climbing and skiing for me anymore. I'm 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 not pushing myself to the limits that I think singularly focused Brody could. Yeah. Instead it's go there, do the mission, to have a week in the capital, maybe have a week in the capital in the on the front, choose more not necessarily more reasonable objectives, but to try to make like a more well-rounded trip out of it. Cause I was realizing I was, I was realizing I was coming back from trips, not having experienced these countries seen the, at all. Seen the place at all. At all. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, mountains are, you know, kind of the same all over the world. Right. I was like, Oh, yeah. it's, I climbed another mountain and so-and-so country. Um, to me, it looked totally different cause I like mountains, but in reality, like I just went to the mountains. Yeah. It's just a mm-hmm. continuation of the mountains it, from it, here. It, it, and it just, those mountains that I went to this time happened to be in this particular you know, foreign country. Totally. Something. I'm curious, could you actually compare that to people who go from resort to resort? Mm. You know, who like go to Cancun and they're like, oh yeah, I went to Mexico. Totally. "Mm, Were there walls around your Mexico, right? right? (laughs) But yeah, but, but you could compare it, but then, but I don't think there's a morality sort of thing there. It's just a different experience. Yeah. I was just in the sense, but I, you know, all the places that I traveled to go, I mean, I, I was the singular focus guy. I did not, care like my mm-hmm. mission okay i'm going to pakistan to climb this thing my main objective is to get out of town like to reduce my exposure to getting sick yeah and to reduce the amount of time it gets there so that i don't mm-hmm. lose my fitness like i just right. don't i don't you know in that particular trip we got stuck in islamabad for 11 days 10 or 11 days because this conflict um up the road and we couldn't get to uh to Gilgit, but but you were sitting in your hotel. But, you weren't like experiencing Islamabad. Is that right? Uh, n- no, because okay. we had to. We, like, we, um, <laughs> in, in some way, you know, we're like trying to, you know, go running every day um, to try and stay fit. Or we found mountain bikes to borrow, and we went and rode those one day. I mean, so we're out and about, but it, but it wasn't our intent. Like, if we hadn't had gotten stuck there, that never would have happened. It would have been like pick me up at the airport. You know, take me to the Ministry of Tourism. Let me get the permit, meet the liaison officer, and let's get the fuck out of town as fast as we possibly can. Like if you can. could fly LA to base camp, you would have. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think now you, in a lot of those places, now you can. <laughs> Actually, I mean, not right. direct from LA, but you can fly to Camp Three. I think. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 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 I would have to agree. It's like as you know, my ambition changed, or you know, what I was seeking changed. Um, I ended up having a lot more cultural contact than I had in the beginning when I was just very tightly sort of focused on the, the, the thing. And now if I, you know, when I think about traveling, um, since I don't have climbing as an object, I, I still need to, okay, I need a reason to go. Cause I don't want to be just a mm-hmm. the tourist mm-hmm. with the camera to, you know, so it might be, yeah, I went to Eastern Europe, you know, to uh, Czech Republic and Bosnia and Serbia and Slovenia for you know first time uh, a couple of years ago. And the objective was to meet Selena's um, family, but uh, and that's something I never you know would have done before. And like, are there any mountains? Right. <laughs> you know, why am why would I go there? There's nothing there for me to climb. I mean, that would be a typical response mm-hmm. of 
like Ecuador, eh, no, that's yeah, there are mountains there, but they're not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, they need to. I need to go to Peru, or I need to go to Bolivia, or I need to go to Argentina. You know, someplace where the mountains are more right challenging or mm-hmm. something for my massive level of competence or whatever I imagined <laughs> I had. You know, like, um, and 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 I'm I'm a little you know I'm almost envious of of you know because I would meet you know a lot of the places that I ended up going climbing I'd meet people who were you know on the trek in Nepal or I'd be hanging out in Kathmandu right. before or after or whatever with people who are just traveling without like who are in contact with the local people who are you know yeah living in the dirt mm-hmm. you know as because they're you know from Australia and they're on the they're on world tour for two years or whatever and I would be slightly envious of that because it didn't, they didn't have the monkey on their back that I had. Right. And, and the drive wasn't there, like making me feel uncomfortable when I wasn't being, you know, they were just like, I'm just here to sort of experience this and share what, you know, I have to share with them and, and accept what they can, you know, share with me. I went to New Zealand for the first time this fall, big, expensive, long trip, spent all my money, full climbing and ski kit okay just rain 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 like everyone says except way worse okay and um (laughs) my friend who's been there for the last 10 years said it's the rainiest spring he'd ever seen and i was like okay so this is bad and i was getting down like my last week and i was like new zealand sucks i never want to come back the mountains don't even look that cool and I'm like, but I don't want to end with this mentality. Yeah. And so I had this like very ceremonious, I'd been, you know, living out of this little rental car for $12 a day. And I took my ski kit, like put it back as if I was flying, uh-huh. strapped everything down, like zipped my ski bag shut, put it in the side of the car. And I said, I'm done trying to ski. I'm now traveling. And I like turned on tourist mode and I had the best week. I saw New Zealand I don't hate it. I want to go back. And it like salvaged my trip for me because if I went there with this singular focus to ski, which I totally did and couldn't mm-hmm. shift, could yeah. not, I couldn't, I couldn't turn it off. I was yeah. like in the most beautiful places and I just had these blinders on and I was just looking at the mountains. I didn't see what was going on around me. I didn't see like the low elevation mountains. I saw like the highest peaks in the country and they were covered in clouds and New Zealand sucks. But was, so there's your sing, there's the answer to your question about singular focus. It's like that's where that leads. That leads if you, and if you couldn't have shifted and given yourself that week to you know switch on tourist mode, travel mode, whatever, um, your relationship to New Zealand in general would be forever imprinted on just being frustrated and that place is fucked and I you know I spent all my money and now I got to go back to you know like whatever like nothing but negative if you hadn't been able to shift and that's where the singular focus leads but you know, could only have that person with the singular focus sorry kelly could could that person be the only person who could have done that first descent though could you did you need that because i like to think not mm-hmm. i like to think you can enjoy your trip and like hey you can also go do something super hard but i don't know if that's the case i think it is but i wouldn't have said that 20 years ago mm. yeah yeah i was just yeah. gonna say that um you know being friends and following you on social media, like to see that transformation of your trip there was actually pretty cool, hmm. you know, because I got to, you know, secondhand experience that, you know, with you being like, oh no, it's raining again, it's raining again. And it was raining a lot. 
I mean, I saw your videos. It was it was, it was pouring rain. <laughs> I've never seen anything know? like it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, you know, all of us who like to go and play in the mountains, you know, like, I was sympathizing with you. I was like, man, that, that looks miserable. But at the same time, like, you know, the landscape was beautiful. And, and it was cool to, to kind of experience that change with you as you, like, switched to tourist mode hmm. and had a great week. And um, Thanks. Yeah. I mean, um, it's like the rest of the country was, I, you know, I saw, I kept looking at the radar map right. and I see New Zealand and it's, it's all purple in the places that I care about. But yeah. hey, look, the rest of the country is <laughs> splitter weather, but like all I can focus on is these two national parks that have the mountains in them, you know? And I'm mm-hmm. like, what am I, what am I doing? I, I remember like thinking, you know, the, the, the concept of sort of chasing winter, you know, cause I was into winter climbing and mm-hmm. so I get living in Seattle and like in the summer, it's just, it's that. You know, it's like the good climbing happens starting in the autumn and through the winter. And then, like, I wasn't super into doing stuff in the summer. And I remember reading about I th- one of the first trips that Ned Gillette, I think, took down to New Zealand. And I was just like, well, I'm never fucking going there. <laughs> that just looks horrible. Did you ever go? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. And if I, and if I, in, you know, I'm, it's, yeah, if I end up there in the next couple of years, it'll be because I decide to take another movie job, and it'll be shooting. And then, like, that. and then you should stay as a tourist because it's glorious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody that I've ever spoken with who has traveled there, been there, whatever, you know, or people that I, you know, worked with or that were from there, they they all say that it's fucking paradise. Yeah, yeah I, I found it amazing. And, right, and I was there just as a tourist. It was it was incredible. It was like one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Totally, I think going as a tourist is the way to go. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't even take running shoes, Kelly. Man, this is back before I ran. Oh, yeah, yep, (laughs) yep. Before I snowboarded. That was interesting. To kind of a tangent, but that I I don't I don't do chairlifts, snowmobiles, helicopters, anything like that. Okay. And that was, it was almost European in the sense that people couldn't imagine climbing mountains in that style to get to the, I mean, it's these mm-hmm. long kind of hideous oh. or heinous approaches that are yeah. just like broken glaciers. And, and so I'd have these, I would have sunny days, one sunny day of yeah. eight hours. And it's like, okay, so am I hiking and all this stuff's multi-day stuff. It's yeah. just too heinous. And it's like, am I, am I hiking in, in a complete rainstorm to some shelter up there, getting there soaking wet with no chance of drying my stuff out climbing and skiing on the sunny day in soaking wet stuff and then hopefully getting off the mountain and starting my exit by the time the rain comes in because i have seven hour window tomorrow morning (laughs) oh my god and i was by myself on you know week three and like and i'm sitting in my car staring at the rain out of the windshield like in some pull off and i'm like do i just not like climbing and skiing mountains enough to do this like that was hard to motivate to be like i'm going to walk in in an absolute torrential downpour mm-hmm. i'm yeah i'm all the way here how can i not motive i'm just like second guessing myself like how do i just not love this stuff should i not even been here i'm spending all my money i'm all the way across the world like why can i not just walk in some rain yeah and so i on, on well, my be, last because i can see into the future because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds terrible yeah. and so i'm just like is this what everyone does in new zealand maybe i just got to do it you know and so <laughs> It was on my last like attempt. This was right before I finally did the ceremonies, the ski bag zip up. And I <laughs> I convinced myself to do it. And I loaded up. And I was really slow getting out of bed in the morning and like loading up the car. 
And I'm, I'm just like, I'm actually going to do this today. It was like a 11 mile approach with 4,000 feet of vert with like a, a really light overnight kit. And I'm like, I guess I'm doing it. And I started driving in the hardest rain I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's like, you know, 8 a.m. And I'm like, I'm going to go do it today. And I'm, I'm like going down the dirt road on the approach to the national park. And I get passed by a national park truck. Yeah. Uh, going the same direction as me. And, you know, he's on the weird side of the road and. I'm still driving and like 10 minutes later he's coming back toward me and just pulls like 90 degrees right in front of me yeah and i get out of my car and he's like the road is completely washed out two miles up like it is under two feet of water he's like my truck's not getting through it let alone your he called it a wee little car he's like your wee little car is not going to get there and i was he's like what are you doing i'm like well i was going to climb and he's like oh that's you're you're still 10 miles from the trailhead there so there's there's no chance you're climbing and i was just like oh thank god like <laughs> so, someone made this decision for me you know yeah. i'm like so i can't yeah i definitely can't go you're right for sure not no chance better turn around you know <laughs> goodness and, um... <laughs> and it was just like that was like all right i'm done yeah <laughs> i'm just so over it you know see i had this uh a couple years ago i went to greenland to go do this mountain run and um, I went with, with my friend, um, and, um, Savannah Cummings, who was like photographing it and filming it. And we picked like what was supposed to be the best weather window of the entire year. And it <laughs> puked snow. Like this is in like summertime, right? It puked snow the entire time. My entire route that I had planned out for months just got completely <laughs> covered up. And we were just sitting there like, we're like, how, how are oh like what are we supposed to do now like we just watch the snowfall every single hour for like you know 24 hours of daylight so we're just watching the snow pile up on like the entire route that i wanted to run and and we we didn't really know how to switch modes at that time because like i was like okay what what do we do now even though you're in greenland there's a million things to yeah yeah, it was beautiful it was incredibly beautiful but like i was like okay like you know, I spent the entire time trying to plan for this run and I finally like banked it all in like the last day that I was there to do this like and I couldn't I still couldn't do the run that I wanted to do, but I ended up doing like a, a much smaller like 20 mile loop. But, you know, I was so focused on like prepping for this like, you know, quote unquote like big run I wanted to do that like I kind of just stayed in town like resting and like prepping and not going out and exploring the way that I probably should have if I just like, you know, realized like okay, like your route is out. Like you can't fight nature on this like yeah all the mountains are coated in snow you know wet sloppy awful snow and you know i don't know and even when i went out on that like 20 mile run i i almost died in this couloir because i it was covered in snow and like all the rocks were loose and they fell out underneath me and it was like this oh, whole I like remember this yeah. yeah it was like this whole mess but like you know it's just like oh, i gotta do this run you know and like yeah. i i probably could have gone out and just like backpacked or something else you know like i could have done something a lot more mellow but like i was like oh i gotta do this run and anyway like i think about that trip a lot like how i could have changed if i had shifted the way that like brody shifted if i could have just like sat down and like actually let me sit with this this guy who's lived his entire life who's carving a narwhal tusk let me just like talk to him for more than an hour and actually like learn about his life you know i probably should have done that i probably would have gotten more out of that trip one of my first climbing mentors in the Seattle area, he had that a bit because he'd been in the Northwest for a while. He was like, oh, yeah. I mean, super into climbing, really into skiing, and also into kayaking, like whitewater kayaking. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, yeah, when it rains, we go, we go paddling because you're already wet. 
Like, yeah. and, and I remember this a couple of times where I was just so singularly focused on climbing. I was willing to go rock climbing at the index town wall in the rain because that's all I wanted to do. Like mm -hmm. I couldn't shift my mentality and you didn't have the kayaking to do. Yeah. And if you had the kayaking, you might not be the same climber. Right. Right. Well, exactly. Or, you know, the one day he just insisted like, no, we're going to go kayaking. And, and, you know, he kind of gave me some, you know, rudimentary ideas about it and then put me in the river. Uh, it's just, yeah. Skycomish river. I, and like, he goes, yeah, it's going to get a little rough down there. Just don't ever lean up river. That was kind of my, the, the <laughs> he goes, you won't, um, I can't teach you how to roll. So if you get upside down, just pull the golf ball on the skirt. Don't lose the paddle or the boat. We'll figure out how to get you later. And oh, God. Like, <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. I've swam four times that day. And I'm like, this, this fucking sport is bullshit. It sucks. <laughs> it's terrible. But he could, like, he could take it because he could shift his consciousness and therefore the activities that were attractive based on the environment. He, he was always doing something where I was, like, often sitting around moping because I couldn't. Hmm. And, you know, uh, I, that lesson didn't ever stick. Unfortunately, <laughs> I could see it, but I didn't learn it. Right. But it. W but I was kind of envious of him for mm -hmm. be able to shift yeah. consciousness in that way, just like based on whatever the forecast was, and yeah. And that was just like, you know, locally. Right. Maybe it's, and I think it's harder when when you make a big long trip where towards an objective you've been focusing on for mm -hmm. a long time. I think when it's, it's committed much to harder like, to yeah see the off ramp to the cool place. Right. Wow. That's. I mean, I would just assume, reading the book, that like you, the the jealousy only goes to. It's only a one way street. It's like, oh, if I was only singularly focused, I would be able to achieve more. I can never think like that person looking the other way and being like, oh, I might be able to. I don't know, have more fun or do something else. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Very astute, Brody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because we do. We only can. It, it's we can only see from our perspective, but you know, the walk a mile in my shoes thing is not a bad, right. Uh, you know, cause you look at it and you go like, wow, there are people who are just able to sort of shift on the fly and adapt in a way. And, and you know, sometimes I would look at them and I go, oh, you're just a, you'll never be good at anything cause you can't focus. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, but then maybe they're the ones who actually, <laughs> don't come home from the trip having spent all their money with a high degree of frustration and anger and you know whatever sure with nothing else to look forward to yeah mm -hmm. yeah. yeah 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 kelly when you were here before mm -hmm. had you already done the big i don't think you'd already no, done it was the big right, it was it was right after right, the world yes yeah and you hadn't done the big run yet no, I hadn't. Oh, you mean the Teton one? Yeah, yeah the big yeah, Teton yeah. one. Yeah, not, yeah. The, not the big one here, yeah. which is now a little one. <laughs> uh, um, everything's relative. Everything's relative. Yeah. I think this one here has got a lot. I don't know. This one here is hard, too, for its for its own reasons. Well, you're the only person that can compare the two. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. That's true. So um, I just want to say, fucking cool. Oh, thank you. That you actually, you. that you did it. Like yeah. That, that, and it looked... <laughs> It looked appropriate. It looked like you. It was heinous. <laughs> so I was just about to say it looked like what you, you got what you needed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. And a, for like a week afterwards, I was like, I'm never going back and doing that again. And like, and now, um, uh, my friend Fred, who I did that that run with, were yeah. like, 
I think we can take like 10 to 12 <laughs> hours off next time. So we're already planning it out. <laughs> oh my God. But yeah, it's, I think it's one of the most gorgeous ridge lines I've ever seen in my life. Was it the, um, and was your choice of direction the correct one or would you try and do it? I like the way that we did it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this this is a link above the hydrographic divide of the Teton Range. So you're basically doing the spine of the entire Teton Range. Um, so not the front mountains that you see, like not the Grand, not like Buck Mountain, not Mount Moran, but it's the spine right behind all of it. So um, oh, the smaller mountain, the smaller mountains <laughs> behind it. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, so we started up near Yellowstone and we linked up. Um, the first it takes 18 miles to even get to the ridge in the first place Whoa. and it's bushwhacking a lot of the way and then once you're on that ridge then you have I'd, it's like it's 50 miles after that of pure ridge link up you know and we dipped down off the ridge a couple of times where it didn't go but like where it was too technical for it was like the resources that you had yeah like, like when we didn't bring ropes even if we had ropes on part of it like it's too chossy to like yeah I don't a know rope how, doesn't do any good it wouldn't have yeah. done any good um but yeah, fact, it, was, it just pulls more loose shit off. Exactly. It was like, yeah, totally. It would have been like a mess. And like the entire first half we were on sighting, um, which is why it took us a lot longer than we thought. But uh, yeah, it was like one of the most incredible things I've ever done. And uh, 40, 43 and a half hours of amazing hallucination, <laughs> pretty much. Or at least the second half was pretty much hallucinating. It was amazing. Fucking, it, yeah. Seeing it peripherally. Like and after we had sat and spoken before, it's like, man, this seems like the culmination of a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it involves like technical climbing, um, endurance. Um, w- where we could run, we were running. Um, we didn't have a lot of access to water on the ridge line, so we were pretty dehydrated the whole time. So I feel like that t- takes a level of t- tolerance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And, yeah. and 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 just knowing how to to like eat i think i brought a little over seven thousand calories in a running vest like a big like an oversized running vest okay for the whole thing but um yeah and then like there are other other factors like we elected not to bring bear spray even though the northern half of the tetons is pretty infamous say, for being oh, grizzly wait, country the spine behind the front mountains mm-hmm. the front mountains being where all the people are and Mm-hmm. Sp- I'm guessing that back there is where we've pushed all the wild yeah, creatures. That's where the, that's where, yeah, the, definitely the northern <laughs> half is where the grizzlies like to hang out. And, and we did the northern half, uh, the like the first 20 miles, eight, 18 miles were in the dark, <laughs> bushwhacking. And it was, yeah, a little bit was on trail, but like uh, there was a lot of bushwhacking there too. It was, yeah. Chasing a GPS signal um, or... No, I mean, or, we had we had it mapped out in our head pretty well. And then once you're on the ridge, like, you're just on the ridge. Yeah, but, but, but in those first 18 miles of bush, sort of bushwhacking. Yeah, like, I, I had, a, a like, Gaia on my phone, and I dropped okay. waypoints to where we thought it'd be easiest to access the ridge. So yeah. we kind of were, like, half-winging it, but half, you know, like, we understand, like, topographic maps and yeah. and things. So we're, you know, yeah. Um, but it's beautiful. I am looking forward to repeating it. Actually, which sounds crazy now, but like the voice of a person four or five months later. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Very special (laughs) person. (laughs) I was just talking to Brody about this earlier, like the hot, cold empathy gap, which is like when you're in the pain cave, you're like, I'm never doing that again. But then when you're out of the pain cave, you're like, I can do that better, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I know, I know, I know you two understand that. (laughs) Like that was the worst day ever. Like type six fun and then you're like 
Yeah, I'm gonna do that again. Just, you just, I just need a warm shower yeah. and to have my blisters heal. Um, so my question then is, you took seven thousand <laughs> calories in a vest. So what are you no longer able to eat? <laughs> All right. Hmm. Like what was in your vest that you just fucking burned out on? Like, how do you feel about carbohydrate gels right now? Oh my god! <laughs> okay, that's where I'm at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Again. So I tried. I tried to like switch up some of the the carbohydrates and salt that I was eating. So I crushed an entire bag of potato chips into a Ziploc bag. Okay. Like one of the big bags of potato chips crushed into like a tiny bag, and then um, I made like I did bring a lot of real food with me. And one of the things I brought that saved me, like the morning after I had we had this really gnarly night where we almost had to half-ass bivy in like a nook on this really exposed rock because it was raining and we were on fifth class rock and it was like dark and like we couldn't find the way through so you popped out your gold foil emergency (laughs) blanket and and i popped out the the emergency blanket (laughs) and you realized that and i made my partner get into the emergency blanket with me because he was trying to be all polite and i was like no get in the blanket with me like (laughs) this this thing has virtually no value yeah other than it's shiny and crinkly. And yeah, exactly. Like, the only reason you carry it is so that, you you know, you, you think you have something to fall back on. You never fucking use the emergency blanket. Yeah, for exactly. Like, I've never like, had to break it out before. And I finally was like, okay, I'm going to use it. Oh, my God, I'm going to use it. And you're getting in the blanket with me. Oh, yeah, you barely knew that guy, too, kind of. That's right. I know, yeah. yeah. He's, he's like someone I met bootpacking because he we boot pack at the same speed right which we were like oh cool like let's be boot pack buddies and then like <laughs> that's actually how i have him in my phone he's boot pack fred i don't even have his entire name in my phone. <laughs> um yeah he's a he's a gnarly guy um he's awesome but uh yeah one of the the real food items i brought was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with like I think an entire stick of butter in between the peanut butter <laughs> and jelly layer nice it's like the best thing ever Highly recommend it. That's great. Peanut butter and butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> you just you just have to go far enough yeah. for it to be super appetizing. Oh, and actually, the jelly yeah. that I used was jelly that um, Payson gave me. Oh, nice. So I was like, I was actually thinking like, oh my god, like I had a really good inspiring friend give me this jelly that I'm putting into the sandwich. So that that also gave me like a little uh, moral boost. It's like yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And your feet see. survived. They did. They were wet a lot of the. For a lot of it. The entire, like, the last 30 miles, we were in a rainstorm, and we were just, like, drenched. Like, like afternoon thunderstorm? Like, yeah. Like, something that... And it started raining in the morning when we were, when we woke up after, not woke up, I mean, when we were, like, when we started climbing again on that, like, fifth class rock, like, it had been raining that night, so we were getting wet then, and then it started raining, like, later in that morning, and then continued just, to rain the entire like rest of the way until we got to the car at 11 30 at night you specifically chose that weather pattern to make it more difficult god we or, no like, unfortunately just, unfortunately fred has has a real job okay and yeah you know he, so we had like a like a yeah. three-day window we could work with and it was like okay like we can't wait another week cause it's gonna be too cold so we're like all right we're gonna like we're gonna like do it now let's just, yeah let's do and, it and- if we get shut down, we get shut down. Yeah, we yeah. thought we'd be through the most technical part before the rain, and like we almost were, almost. Nice. So, but uh, so you could speed up the first half and the second half. I think now that we've actually done it, we can like cut. I think we can shave off a lot of hours. Like the, the first time I did the whirl, it took me like thirty-one hours. The second time I did the whirl, it took me twenty-three and a half hours. Like I feel like if you know you can apply something like that on that scale, like yeah. to something that's much longer, like this, like we could probably take off a pretty large chunk of time. You know, yeah, I have I have uh, I was actually 
showed this to Nick. I hadn't looked at this document for a long time, but Nick um, had asked about the Grand Traverse. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I said, oh, I have, uh, because, he, because he's like, how much volume is it going to take kind of thing, whatever. And I said, well, I have, um, I have the, the two months, I have Rolo's two months of training leading up to when he set the record mm-hmm. um, back then. And I said, we should just open this up and look at it. Wait, were you training him? No, not Rolo. No, okay. no, but, but we had this, we've had an ongoing conversation and that kind of thing. And he, and I was very curious about it after it happened. And I said, Hey, can you put together sort of like your weekly mileage and elevation gain and what you've done between, you know, sort of running for yourself, but also guiding clients on the grand and stuff like that. And, um, I mean, and within a, if, if I recall correctly right now, I think within it, he did the grand traverse three times within a 10 or 12 day period. Mm-hmm. Um, God, that's after, well, after that only took of, like six hours. So like, there's not that much time. <laughs> well, one of, one of them, I think he went with Kim. Um, and that time they were just going slow, trying to find all of the, the you know, very, be very mm-hmm. precise about the different, sh- you know, sort of shortcuts or places where you could make time or whatever, yeah. make better decisions. I think that, I feel like that one was around 12 hours. Another one, cl- you know, eight ish. And then the six hour or 19 or whatever it was. Wait, that, the 12 hours, the long one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And so I don't know if that, um, you know, how that sat with Nick after I kind of showed him up. Like, here's the, and not that you're, you know, he would be trying to do that. Um, you know, do it. Like, I'm sure he would like to do it in less than, you know, like not carry pivy gear. Right. Which is you like, know, or, that's how I'd like to do it too. Like I'd like to go yeah. continual movement. Yeah. Cause then you're, you don't have to carry all this heavy shit. That's why I like running up and down mountains. Cause then you don't have to carry all this like heavy shit with you. You just like do it a lot faster. That rope fuck, just gets in the way so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. It, yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely. Yeah. It's slow you down. Let's see. As my friend Vince Anderson once said, Oh, He's pulling the rope out. There goes an hour. <laughs> I'm just like, mm-hmm. Oh, ouch! <laughs> was he saying that about you? No, no, no. Okay. No, I was. I was actually. It, it, this was. Um, it, it, it was a uh, a guy who was sort of retaking um, the ski guide exam mm. after uh, after not having passed, and so I was actually there as one of the clients, nice. like that he was supposed to like, um, t- you know that Vince was observing this fellow and how he was relating to the people who were kind of posing as clients. And, sure. Um, you put your gloves in the wrong hands or something. It, you know, something like, that. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, I wasn't trying to be an asshole. Sure. You know, cause, cause a, he's doing fine. And Vince is just like, no, just come. I'm like, love to go ski Mount Snaffles with you or whatever. And, um, so I think that was the first day as we skied the snake on Mount Snaffles. Oh, I've always wanted to ski that. That's it was super cool. <laughs> I mean, especially with those guys because it was Vince, Mike Alkaitis, um, Dave Aaron's, and then the guy who and his, I think his name was is either Chris or Eric. I can't remember the fellow <laughs> who was retaking the exam. But it was uh, you know a bunch of you know hitters and it mm-hmm. was incredible conditions. <laughs> so good but just (laughs) but just that comment is just like if you can't when you pull the rope out in a situation like that everything slows down Mm -hmm. like you could be moving 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 and then it's like time stops yeah except it goes away also (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
and I, so I totally agree with you. Like, hey, if you can do these things without the rope, and you know, some people. I mean, let's see, North Ridge of the Grand, mm-hmm. five eight, but it's kind of weird five eight because yeah. the rock in the Tetons is not like. And there can be a lot of ice in there. Yeah. Depending. And so that's so far below Rolo's threshold that there's not even a question. But I'm guessing that Nick, if you, you know, whoever he's going to go with, that they're going to want to have a rope for mm-hmm. some of that stuff. And I was just like, well, go rehearse it at least so you know what the rack is. Wait, did Nick beat it this year or last year? No, 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 no. Okay. He's, he's, uh, he's just wants to go try it. Okay. And so he and I were talking about training. He's like, could you help gotcha. me get ready for it or whatever? And, you know, it's just like, yeah, you're looking at this training for this thing. This is only suggestive of the amount of volume that you're going to have to do. Sure. Um, Which was it absurd, Rolos? I didn't know he was guiding there when he. Yeah, yeah. So okay. on day, so a lot of days he'd be like guide on the grand and then go for a like twenty mile run or you know or do, you know do, have clients on guides wall you know and then do, do the run or whatever. It was a it was a pretty serious amount of mileage mm-hmm. and vertical gain. Hmm. Cool. Like I think the the day that um, he did the 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 week the mileage for the week. During, when he did set the record, I think it was, I mean, it wasn't, it was either 31 or 36,000 feet of vertical that week. So it's not insignificant. Sure. Um, it, and a lot harder on a person on foot than it would be on skis. Mm-hmm. Cause you're not getting the, cause you're getting, yeah. the, you know, more impact mm-hmm. on the way down. Um, and that, and, but it was a significant, he was, you know, he was doing, you know, pr- like hundred mile weeks, pretty much. So wow. it's you know for a runner who's training for an ultra or whatever, that's about you know it might be about right. But mm-hmm. for most people who aren't runners, that's that's significant volume. Uh-huh. I think and take some time to adapt to it. Yeah, a long time to build up to that without yeah. just destroying yourself. How much did you? I mean, you you put in a lot of miles last year before the the Teton thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, I work with a coach and she. The one thing she does, and one of the reasons I really like working with her, is because she makes me rest. And you know, she's like, "No, no, no! You can't, wait, get, wait. you can't get these gains without like, you know, resting every week. Like, you can't just go out and run every day or do whatever every day. You have to like let your body recover, and that's that can be a really hard thing to do when you want to be active every day. You know? Wait, Kelly, could you say that louder for the cheap seats, just in case <laughs> they didn't hear back there? You can't make gains without recovering. I've only heard this. Is this actually? I'm just saying. It's like, you know. <laughs> uh, Are you a big yeah. advocate for this as well? I, I've, uh, you know, like only rest? recently I've discovered that it's a, it's a. Wait, really? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> because I, no, I've only found this recently. I'm like, rest. It's hard. It's hard to rest when you want to like go out every day. It it is. Yeah. I mean, and Selena has an issue with. It. I mean, I've trained any number of people who ha- who be because they are in a sense overachievers, and they and much of their success has come on the back of going out every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of maybe it's mileage that catches up. Maybe you know a ceiling that they hit where they're mm-hmm. like not making you know progress in a physical sense as they had been before. Um, a lot of times it is simply, uh, a lack of recovery or mm-hmm. a lack of sort of taking care of the machine that allows them, um, or that is preventing them from achieving, you know, doing what mm-hmm. they want. Can the recovery you... thing is absolutely huge, mm-hmm. but I think especially as, um, 
I will say this, especially as men, uh, we spend a lot of the early part of our lives trying to prove that we're not lazy or trying to prove that we can make something of ourselves or trying to pr- like, um, th- yeah, that we're not pieces of shit. Like the, the, <laughs> that we're not going to just end up on the couch that like I go do these things. I get in, and, and it's really hard to shift that consciousness later mm-hmm. when it becomes apparent that we drained that well. Mm-hmm. And now something needs to get put back in. Right. Right. Yeah. Can, how, can you define re- recovery? <laughs> Brody. <laughs> Um, in, in what sense? Like how to do it? No. Or like what how it, do you know when you're recovered? Or <laughs> like what it what it is? Because um, I'll, 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 this is, I'm, um, my approach seems to be pretty atip. I don't, I don't really get what a recovery is. People be like, you know, what's your recovery regimen? And they say like all these like devices and time and calories. And, and I'm like, I don't know. I just like wait till the next day. <laughs> right it got dark uh, it, yeah yeah it got dark i had to sleep okay well <laughs> you know good good quality and duration of sleep is a form of recovery okay adequate, yeah, i like that adequate yes. nutrition and, i sleep and like the, 11 hours a day yeah okay I, like, I sleep like 10 hours a night in the winter like if it's dark i'm usually asleep that's so, that's recovery yeah, oh that 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 not just that but uh, that's a really important <laughs> aspect okay. for sure um, is it just the, getting you back to a hundred? Is that what rec- I, don't, I just don't? Well, it, it, it depends <laughs> right. if you're going hard enough to actually take yourself away from a hundred, mm. right? Like if, are, are you, do, you know, going either in, you know, in terms of intensity or volume, um, far enough that you are, your capacity is reduced. Are you doing that with enough frequency that on, you know, starting on Monday, you're charging hard all the time and then Friday you can't go as hard anymore. It feels like you're going the pace that, you know, like it feels hard. Cause pace. you're exerting yourself in the same way. Yeah. But you might not be going like, if you just like this, the silly analogy we used to use is like, Hey, if you went out and ran a mile as hard as you could every day, um, for two weeks, you know what would would you be getting faster that whole time or would it or would you be getting slower while the sensation you were experiencing was that it was getting harder right is there an answer to that um that's just a theoretical you know thing but but to to, to illustrate the 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 point that um yeah without you know if if you want to put um you know, maybe there are certain tools that, you know, to use for recovery. I mean, so you're involved in a rep- an activity that, that, that uh, requires repetitive movement, mm. right? And, and some of the physiological adaptations to that repetitive movement allow you to do the activity better. Some of the adaptations that result from that, um, like if you're, maybe if you're a runner and, you know, you, I mean, some of the, ad- some of the physiologic a- adaptations prevent you from, um, progressing in a way that you might if you manage those mm-hmm. better. Some people like to stretch. Others don't. Some people will, you know, manage the, um, like, let's just, you know, the, the chronic thing of the runner with the short hamstrings, right? That, that because the, because the range due to the range of motion or the cyclist who develops very specific postural issues and lack of upper body integrity and that sort of thing, just because of the, the you know, the, the activity, um, those are things that, 
you know, uh, can be addressed using certain recovery types of means. But if you're the, 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 the two things that are just going to drain the tank, it's intensity and it's volume. Those are the inverse. If you go out for a long, easy day, I mean, if you, um, think of the day, you know, go, uh, I mean, I don't know what, what would be a long day in the Wasatch for you? Skiing. Yeah. I just measure vert, right? Okay. So a big day is a 10,000 foot day. Yeah. 10,000 foot day. Um, have you always been able to do 10,000 foot days? If you ask me to do them back to back. No, I haven't. Okay. So let's, yeah. so let's, let's say that you do a 10,000 foot day and it's somewhat difficult conditions. Like it's not just easy. I'll be tired. Easy, easy. You'll, you'll be tired. Um, and then what would you do in order to be like, conditions are good. The next storm, like it's just, you know, storm after storm that's coming in. You want to take advantage, but you can't do 10,000 foot days back to back to back. Or maybe you can, but at <laughs> some point that will have to stop and you'll have to do something. And it's not just sleep and adequate nutrition that will bring you back to baseline in the fastest sort of most efficient way. That might be the key part. Cause I usually get there, but it's probably not the fastest, most efficient way. Like if you wanted to take advantage of like a series of storms coming in to have big days like that, you have to manage your recovery in between. And it's, and a lot of it is, you know, um, when, when we talked earlier about like, okay, using the space out there, the gym as a means to improve, you know, performance or whatever out in the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that is, is t learned out there via different mechanisms is the ability to recover not only within the not only after the effort but within the effort itself like how are you managing your output during the 10,000 foot day that keeps you you know closer to a full tank versus you know draining it down to e and then getting you know sp you know piling yourself into the car and somehow getting home and sleeping mm -hmm. for 11 hours and hoping that's going to be enough yeah. interesting like, and that's, that's managing, you know, hydration and nutrition. That's, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it's, it's choice of, you know, how you, how you put in the skin track. What's, what's, yeah, we've got the f fucking fattest skis in the world now and the big ass piece of carpet and people can go directly uphill. But when you're going straight up, skinning straight uphill, you're taxing the same muscles that you're going to use when you go downhill. So why not choose a more efficient, yeah. It takes, if I choose a lower angle skin track, I traverse more, et cetera. And I'm, I'm shifting the load to glutes and hamstrings versus the quads. Um, maybe I'm ending up doing more mileage, but the, the cost of each cycle, each step is lower. Mm -hmm. And I might be going at a pace where I can actually take in calories um, and, and because, uh, um, and, 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 and fluid, while I'm moving, as opposed to when I'm going directly uphill, confronting this really steep slope, my entire body is engaged because I have to push off with my ski poles in order to get up this fucking thing. My body position, because I'm so leaned forward, I'm compressing my diaphragm. I'm having to use the sort of intercostal muscles. Um, you know, I have the, like the big muscles putting me in this position that's preventing me from getting full breaths of oxygen. So I'm using my breathing muscular to, to fight against the tension I'm building. Wow. 
in my upper body because of the choice of the line that I took, whereas I could be completely upright, leading with my hips, fully expanded Mm -hmm. if I was choosing a lower angle skin track and going more. So, I mean, and that's just efficient physiological sort of well, management. I had to learn all this stuff for running because I used to run like shit and I wasn't able to recover. Because, because you were an uphill hiker yeah. before you were a runner. Exactly, and yeah. all of the behavior that you learned from that mm-hmm. of leaning forward, of having been hinged slightly at yep. the waist is stuff that can't help you when you're running on flat ground. Yeah, exactly. And in learning how to breathe correctly as you're going uphill so that you're actually recovering and getting enough oxygen into your body while you're going uphill so that you can eat and drink going uphill. And then when you hit the downhill, you can like nuke it. And you can also kind of rest in a way going downhill because you're letting gravity do the work for you. So if And I recover so much faster than I did when I first started running where I was just blowing my body out because you, know, you hammering. haven't you haven't dug it so because of efficient management mm-hmm. you know energy management or, or postural management or whatever during the activity itself you haven't drained the tank as far so then maybe eating adequate calories and getting enough sleep is enough enough for mm-hmm. recovery i'm learning so much <laughs> <laughs> well wow. i saw it's... eric orton and he um, he's in the book Born to Run as, as the coach in it. And he, okay. I went to him for one hour and he completely changed the entire way that I run in order so that I can be like more efficient just running, just with the way that I, my feet land on the ground and the way that I use wow. my knees, which completely changed the way that like my entire body moved when I ran. And it got rid of like the chronic pain I had in my shins and my hips. One hour. Talking One hour. Wow. He completely changed the way that I that I run and, wow. and reduced. So reduced the cost of the activity, mm-hmm. so that you so that maybe you could use like if you because if you've Brody, you've been talking you talk to some people and they give you a certain amount of time that they address. You know, yeah. Okay. If I I train twenty hours a week and four hours of that is devoted to recovery or whatever it is, um, it, it, that that might have been more, you know, or that 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 amount of time devoted to recovery, um can be more or less depending on how you how efficiently you manage yourself during the actual activity wow um and is it possible to manage yourself during the actual i mean like if you were going for some reason if it was a race and you wanted to win you weren't concerned about managing it for the next day do you not manage it well i think you have to manage in order to get nutrition in right like you know like like one of the like some of the races I've done best in was because I know how to breathe going uphill and recover going uphill. So I'm actually still passing people going uphill, but I'm also recovering as I'm going uphill so that when I get to the top of the hill, I can just immediately start like, you know, running fast downhill and everyone else is like up there catching their breath just because I've learned techniques, you know, and this is like huh. just in a race, you know, so I am trying to push myself really hard without a concern for the next day. But all of these techniques have uh, helped me get faster, you know. But it's during. also like if you can, if, it, it, you know, race duration um, influences the answer to your question. Right, right? totally. And that, in, that in the sense too. that like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be out here for six hours in this race. I can't just like right. not care for the first hour and like and, and win the first hour. Right. You but know, if but, it's an hour then, long race, that's a different story. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And um, so varying degrees of, uh, of attention need to be, need to be paid in that way. But um, yeah, if it's a multi-day sort of event in the mountains, it's a, it's a different strategy than if you know you're going to sleep in your bed that night. Gotcha. 
um, also. But then, and and the um, and the recovery thing, you know, a lot of that can be okay. I'm going to reduce the amount of stress in my okay. Assuming I have some control over my life, um, <laughs> I'm going to reduce the amount of stress outside my physical activity in order to be able to you know to use so so I'm not just compounding physical stress that I just you know put on myself in the mountains when I went skiing with this emotional stress of you know my job my relationship my my shit relationship with you know food or whatever right. um <laughs> so I'm not just putting stress on top of stress and some of the um recovery stuff I mean there's all sorts of you know techniques or whatever generally people gravitate towards the stuff that they want to do as opposed to the stuff that is probably what they need to do i wonder could and, it be that my recovery i frequently just like i don't want to ski seven days a week anymore or run seven days a week anymore mm-hmm. i just like one day i'll just not be motivated and i'll have to force myself to go to the climbing gym or something like that could okay. that be my recovery day just like kind of masked by motivation um a, a little bit but if you're if you say force if you use mm-hmm. the word force on that day to go to the climbing gym or whatever, oh, right. it's not necessarily a recovery day. Like I think, of, and I do that because like, I feel lazy. Otherwise, I'm like I can't not do anything today. Yeah. But I can. Uh, you're saying <laughs> I, I believe that is possible. Okay, yes. yeah. But I have to say well, that's the best part well, of me having a coach is she's like you have to rest, and that does not mean yoga. That does not exactly. mean going to the climbing gym. Like you have to like. Do, that means Netflix. Yeah, she means yeah. like you can take your dog for a walk. That's what you can do. Right. But yeah. I'm glad I have someone to tell me that. Otherwise, you know, like you're saying, Brody, I would be in the same position. I'd be like, well, okay, I'm not going to run today, but like. Right. It, but if I. But. <laughs> but I'm going to go do something else. <laughs> but if I don't run. But if I don't train, it'll all be gone. Right. <laughs> like how. It, and, and and I think this, you know, some of it, there's the, there's the lazy. When I say talk about proving it. Uh, and sometimes it's to others. Sometimes it's to ourselves is the reason that we you know continue we have to do something every day um and uh i think changing that relationship is uh or or sometimes the 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 handcuffing nature of that relationship with i got to prove that i'm not lazy also comes from the fact that we think i've worked so hard to get this fitness i just Mm -hmm. can't take much i can't take time off Mm -hmm. oh yeah because it'll it'll all be gone but um you know, and yeah, cardiovascular fitness is the more perishable if compared to strength or explosive power. Um, but you can take a fair amount of time off and not lose, and in fact, gain and and generally gain. Yeah, oh yeah, wow. I mean, we were. Uh, I mean, just to, as an aside, with um, you know Sam Elias who's been coming in and you know, making progress on the various tasks that he's been assigned, but then he's had some work responsibilities where he's gone away for, you know, five or six days to the URA ice festival and then was back for a week or so and then, uh, or two, whatever it was. And then off to the Michigan ice festival, every time he comes back, he hits PRs in the gym. Wow. From having been away from the gym. Sure. Imagine. I mean, and yes, doing activity, but at a low enough, but far enough below his threshold that it's not really stressful. A lot of good, I think, social recovery involved in, um, mm-hmm. you know, attending those events and being around people and sharing the knowledge that he has. And this is a bit specific to his temperament, but um, I think there's a, you know, some physical rest that occurs and also a bit of an emotional recharge on one level. 
costly potentially on another. But, um, but coming back and just realize like, wow, when I don't do the same thing over and over again, um, and I do something different or I reduce the intensity with which I do that thing and I come back to it and try it at the higher intensity. Wow. I feel fresh and different hmm. because I did step away from it and and nobody and there's like oh nobody thought i was lazy for not right you know being at the ice fest and and not doing my physical not finding a gym you know at the end of the day to do my thing or whatever like the the super motivated driven mentally yeah uh kind of messed up person might do or whatever which can be harmful you're saying yeah yeah i mean i think at least harmful to progress yes Yeah. And then, but then let's just say there's also a, um, a physical maturity, (laughs) um, that one eventually reaches where recovery is more important. Gotcha. And that yeah, after, after, yeah, after a certain age or a certain amount of mile age, um, (laughs) the recovery thing becomes a lot more important. I think like (laughs) something I learned in, in yoga is that like, you know, the recovery in between poses is like just as important as the pose itself. Hmm. And so if you kind of apply that to, you know, all of the outdoor activities that we do, like, you know, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, I remember my friend had this post-it note on his, uh, his wall in his house and it said, busy work isn't necessarily productive. So I try to think about that, like, you know, just going out and like blasting every day, like, or w- whether it's a physical worker or, or, you know, work, work, like, like me with art, like just trying to sit down and like make myself, you know, sit at my desk and like work when I don't really have anything inspiring me at the moment. Like, it's not really going to be productive in any way, you know, it, and might actually be frustrating and therefore negative. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. I might, it might change my relationship to wanting to do work on the day when I actually feel like I can. Mm hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I think something that, um, Kelly, you just said there is, is important is like, okay, the recovery in between the poses is as, as, is as important as the poses themselves. Um, if you just look at, uh, um, the life as it happens has a natural interval structure to it mm-hmm. and the, and you know, you do organized training and there's always, you know, especially for cardiovascular, you know, running or cycling or any of the cardiovascular activities, there's always going to be some interval, you know, structure to it of a work followed by a certain amount of rest. And if you combine the, you know, the, 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 the work and rest ratio in the right way, then you end up being able to do a higher quantity or a greater quantity of higher intensity effort because you've built in these rest periods. So that's managing it from the outside. But if you just look at, at, you know, the, the, the waxing and waning of intensity, social work, physical, whatever that, that just happens in life, it becomes really obvious that downtime is necessary yeah. and not just that time when you turn the light off or whatever and go to sleep, but that, okay, I'm going to, I did my physical activity and now for the next couple of hours, my job is to replenish all of the water that I lost while I was skinning uphill and skiing down and like, you know, breathing in a dry environment. Cause that's where we live. Um, I need to replace the calories that got spent that I couldn't replace during the activity. Cause there's no way you can, you know, 
calorie in, calorie out while you're doing the thing. So you come home in a deficit. Yeah, you got to replace that. Um, I'm going to be quiet and not think about, I'm not, A, I'm not going to second guess my effort because maybe I didn't achieve my objective while I was out there doing the thing. I'm not going to, it happened, it's over, it's done. And now my job is to put myself in the best possible condition for the next opportunity. And that is recovery, you know, in a sense. But it's the downtime after the, you know, the intensity of the effort. And then that permits you or that allows you to go as hard or harder the next time if you've managed that downtime in a, in a good way or allowed it to happen. Of second guessing the effort is different than evaluating it. Uh, yes. Huh. I mean, of, because there's, there's, well, no, because um, let me give a contradictory answer here. Um, I would say that second guessing is because you you can't evaluate new it's very difficult to evaluate your own effort in a, from a neutral position mm, yeah right and so therefore if you cannot be neutral in the evaluation then it is almost always second guessing it's wow. different from from going from looking you know Kelly looking back and going oh I think I could go faster here I think I could go faster there that's from like two weeks out that's from three weeks out that's like after assimilating it and it's not being mad at yourself for not having gone as fast then as you believe you could do in the future um or not and because you went into that long effort with no expectation i mean completely open-ended like i'm gonna take seven thousand calories and i hope it's enough right but it's not like okay we're doing it in fucking 40 hours you know right. or we're doing it in 24 hours or whatever like you so i think a lot of second guessing comes from um going into any effort with certain expectations and then not fulfilling them and, um, and it's super, so I would say that, you know, stepping back three weeks later and looking at the, you know, the Teton crest traverse, if that's mm-hmm. what we, that we call Teton it. Teton center punch is what we officially Teton center it, punch. But, okay. So, you know, we, whatever. Assimilate it, look back at it and then, but not in a judgmental way. And, and, and it's really hard to evaluate effort without applying a moral judgment to it and you know and more and, and more importantly a moral judgment to yourself and how you performed i did good i did bad no right. i fucking did hmm. right and the only and it's good or bad in relation to expectations of myself or an outcome that i carried into that if i could go in relatively neutral knowing i'm going to try as hard as i possibly can And then afterwards being able to evaluate, recognizing, wow, as hard as I can produced this result, it's as soon as I assign an expectation, it's going to be more or less than like my evaluation of it or my assessment of it's going to be more or less than. Mm -hmm. And if I, and so therefore I'm not completely neutral. Right. And I think, so for me, the second guessing, I mean, I used to, you know, when I was training people a lot, I mean, I would always structure the training so that the end of the workout, I mean, so that they would quote, accelerate out of the gym. So that they would leave the gym having their last experience in the gym because your, your, your body, you know, the, the organism is only going to remember the most recent thing pretty much. Um, it, unless conscious, uh, sort of awareness is directed towards it. Um, 
but to try and get people to accelerate out of the gym. So they ends on a positive note. So there, there is no, cause for me, the, the, the sort of negative analysis, the second guessing of the, of the effort or the activity, um, mystical as it may be, or, you know, woohoo, whatever. I think it has an overall effect on the, 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 uh, how the organism assimilates that activity. If I look at it and I pass them, you know, how hard I was able to do something, how much I lifted, how fast it was, the power output for the duration, whatever mechanism I'm trying to analyze. If I look at it and it's not up to my expectation, then I think the result won't, um, it won't be as positive it could be if the work itself was neutral and I didn't put this moral blanket on top of it of good or bad. God, that's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, especially since you're the one doing it and you know how it feels while yeah. you're doing it. Yeah. Hence, the coach. Yeah. Mm, in a way. Or someone objective or someone to man to recognize. And, you know, we were talking about the gym out there. People coming in and do their own thing or whatever. You know, part of the reason that doesn't happen is because having someone to guide and assess they take that analysis out of your hands in a way. And if they're neutral and they care and the relationship is correct, and I know you well enough as a trainee, I set up things a, that I know you need, but B that aren't going to, that, that you're never going to leave um, thinking that you were a lazy, you know, piece of shit. Like I couldn't right. do what, the, you know, what I expected I could do or, or whatever. It's just the work was the work. The work is neutral. Now my job is to recover so that I can do more neutral work in the future. Um, but without, I mean, when it comes to, we applied this, this sort of moral language to everything, you know, it's diet, it's, it's, um, it's the physical work itself. It's all of these things that we misuse language, but, and that use of language manipulates our psychology. And, um, and, there's, there, and there's no manual for it. There's not like a handbook or something that right. you, yeah. um, you can uh, get that has lessons or something. I think it's so, it's so much trial and error. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's good. I mean, I just, I don't approach it very methodically, you know, I think especially since it's gotten tied into it's what I do for work now. Yeah. And that's just added this other layer of, mm -hmm complication to it i think and um i also have never failed on an objective due to fitness which has made it hard to be more methodic with my training yeah if, if i feel like it's just working yeah i mean if you never came up short short i mean a lot of times in a you know interview with someone who wants to start training i'm like Okay, you want to improve your physical fitness. Have you ever not been fit enough to do what you wanted to do? Because if it, fitness has always been there and it's never been the thing that let you that, that that prevented you from achieving an objective, well then there's no reason to, you know, necessarily to be methodical about it because it's not the problem. Or your objectives aren't right? Exactly. <laughs> you might only be choosing things that are within you know, your reach. And there's nothing wrong with that. This kind of goes, I'm, I'm not a <laughs> goal oriented person at all. 
Okay. I don't set goals. I don't believe. I, I'm sure they work for other people. I just don't believe in it at all for myself. Okay. I think that I'm, I think I have enough self-motivation and kind of trust in myself to know that I'm trying as hard as I can at any given time. Yeah. And if I, for some reason, am not, it's, there's probably a reason for it. I, okay. I'm tired or whatever. I can't do it right now. And I feel like just like the ambiguous nature of goals make it so you're setting yourself up to succeed too easily and then kind of lay off at the end or to fail for this ambiguous goal. And then you feel terrible about yourself, even though you pulled it out of nowhere, so to speak. Right. Or that goal, the, the goal you set be, is a motivating force all the way until it becomes an anchor preventing you from progress. Sure. And if I think there are people, I can only speak for myself, that can have that motivating force without having that end goal mm-hmm. in mind. And and I think, th- and there's a lot of, um, I mean, the, the, the establishment of goals is closely tied to your self-image. And, and that may be wrong. And if somebody else establishes the goal for someone who knows you really well and establishes a goal for you that may be further or more than something you might um, address yourself or, or that you would attempt yourself... Um, th- that should indicate like if th- that you don't believe in yourself enough, but clearly right. if you're not, um, I mean, I, th- the, I think the relationship with goals or objectives is, uh, um, it, it could change over time for you. It certainly did for me, but I needed the objectives in the beginning to, um, motivate appropriate level of commitment let's say interesting or or whatever and now i'm i I would go into something you know i'm like yeah i'm gonna try as hard as i can and i'm gonna trust myself to do that because i i have spent x amount of time proving that i'm not lazy and then i'm not to yourself i'm not gonna shirk yeah the risk you know i'm not gonna try and get out of doing the work or whatever um I, i i think yeah, the relationship to using an, a goal or something like that, I think it's pretty individual. And if you can do it without, it's probably better. Interesting. It's so taboo to say that though, right? I, yeah. I mean, but that's, I, I think that's um, it's because most people are lazy. I mean, like I... <laughs> so they need an objective to get out, you know, like something to work towards to get, to keep them from just repeating that oh, sort of pattern of, you know, lazy quote unquote behavior. I, wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> well, like, no, but I think it makes sense though, because like, even I don't know if you get this, Brody, but like when I go out running, people are always like, "Oh, like what are you training for?" You know, right? And it's like, of course, well, n- nothing in particular, just to go out to run. Right. I really right. enjoy running. It's like, amazing. Like, like, what, what's your what's your mileage for this week? What's your goal? Right. You know, and like right. I, I mean, I do train, but like you know, for most people, it's you know they they don't go out and run unless they have like, you know, they're training for like a half marathon. Unless or they have a box to check. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's not, you know, just to, to be out, you know? I mean, Mark, I, I'm, I'm a runner. I run like most days, but I'm not, I'm not Kelly by any means. And I decided I wanted to try to run a hundred mile race. And, oh, that's right. You are gnarly. And I, but off the couch. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> right off the couch. I mean, for someone who runs, you know, six miles, eight miles, six days a week or whatever yeah and i decided to do it and my i guess my goal was to see if i could finish yeah yes of course right and within like the first 30 miles i'm like no my goal has shifted right because like i'm gonna finish this and 
and maybe maybe right away it was pretty much that though and it's like instead of having this goal i want to go under 30 hours i want to go under 24 hours it was like i changed my goal realistically as my based on feedback you were getting in real time in real time right and i think everyone that's like what you talk about at the beginning of a hundred mile race everyone's like us what what time you going for you know and i'm like i don't know freaking as fast as i can yeah based on how i feel now and now and now and now Mm -hmm. so if we talk about the establishment of goals and that kind of thing that is i think the healthiest way to do it because Mm -hmm. if somebody oh what are you going for i'm gonna do it in 27 hours well for sure that person's not doing it in 23 because they already anchored themselves to an outcome. Absolutely. And the body has an internal clock that is absolutely precise and magnificent. And we will fulfill, our, we can fulfill our expectations. And if we ever find ourselves, you know, in, in a, and this is a lot, you know, the discussion of sort of self-image and performance is maybe a longer one, but the example of, um, and I, it might've been, there was a competitive shooter, Lanny Basham, and he, uh, in, in, in a, <clears throat> one of his discussions of self-image, he's talking about a guy who is, you know, involved in a running race and finds himself ahead of the person who was forecasted to win. And this person doesn't see, see himself as a winner or someone who's even in the top 10. <laughs> so that's, you know, self-sabotages in some way to achieve the outcome that is consistent with his own self-image. And that's where, you know, we get the, the anchor uh, uh, to, to performance. And if you can go in completely open-minded, which I think is a highly evolved state and very difficult to do, um, then you can shift your objective on the fly in a positive rather than negative way. Most mm-hmm. of the time, we, mm-hmm. you know, if it's just like, okay, I'm going to establish my goal of finishing this 100-mile race in 20 hours, you know, and you get to the 50-mile checkpoint, and you're so far off the pace. You know, generally when people shift their objectives, it's in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And it's rarely to go faster or do more because, but to, to be able to take the feedback, assimilate it, and turn that into a higher output or a different expectation is I think that's remarkably evolved, actually. Well, like, huh. the second time I did the whirl, I was just trying to beat my own time on it, which was like 30, 30, 30 and a half hours, I think, like close to 31 hours the uh-huh. first time. I was just trying to go faster than I did the initial time. Like the second time, I, got, I was the first woman to do it in under 24 hours, which I right. didn't even think I was going to come close to that time. But as I was going, I realized like how much faster I was moving just because I knew the route. And I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, if I keep up this pace, I can actually do this in under 24 hours. And it, I ended up having one of those like, you know, a, like positive Shift the outcomes. goalpost yeah, kind of outcome. Yeah, it completely like changed. And like the only time I really was like screwing myself over was trying to go down the, um, the ice field off of Lone Peak, which was still in at that time of year. And yeah. that was you know, kind of a mega crux that cost me a lot of time. But, you know, had that not been there, I probably would have gone even like 40 minutes faster. But, you know, but that was like a really cool shift to have that, like the positive, you know, 
like goal. I'm like, oh my god, like I can do this so much faster than I thought I could. Like you're probably you know? speeding up as you go. I, I was speeding up, and like by the wow. end, like I was running probably my fastest mileage in my life down that trail. And unfortunately, it was a Sunday going down Bell's Canyon, so there were people everywhere. And I'm usually a really nice person on the trail, but like I was like <laughs> screaming at people to get out of my way. I was like, I was like coming up on the left, like move, and people like didn't want to move, and I was like running around them, and like you weren't st- shouting Strava. <laughs> <laughs> people from behind <laughs> <laughs> i mean mark oh i agree God. like listening that just gave me the chills like that that just sounds so like evolved it really did to like think <laughs> about someone like seeing the possibility so like why not just why not just speed up because yeah. you weren't shooting for 29 and a half hours right. you were shooting for faster than 30 that could be 10 or that could be 29 right? right and like and if you're obviously motivated enough to see how low you can make that time yeah, that did sound so evil. Yeah, you're, totally right. you're gonna yeah. speed. You know, you will be able to speed up at that point, and that's. I, I think this is a, um, you know, the 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 establishing of goals that, uh, you know, the unrealistic one is, you know, just as ridiculous as the one that's that's, um, that's actually self limiting. Right, the forty hour goal. It, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or the or or thinking like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do the world, but I'm gonna. Um, I mean, I guess if like the unrealistic one, let's just say is the, you know, okay, never having, op, you know, been on technical terrain at all and thinking like I can just go up to the world in my running shoes or whatever, right. one of those mm-hmm. little water bottles you carry in your hand and like, okay, that's, somebody can do that. Tony Krupica could probably do that. Mm. I was going to say, I think he's from Spain. <laughs> but, okay, Tony, yeah. I thought it was Mars. Um, yeah, yeah, well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that would be without a water bottle at all. <laughs> and from town. Like, um, but, uh, so, so that that's uh, unrealistic to expect to be able to do that. But then also, the thing is like, okay, Kelly, if you just decided like, oh man, I'm just, I, I'm, I just can't, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, weekend warrior type so i'm gonna i'm gonna uh i'm gonna go i'm gonna stash a tent mm-hmm. and i'm gonna like sleep part way or whatever and and then if you commit to, then if that's the objective that's what you're gonna do right you're never gonna do it like you if you decide you're not gonna you're, learn how to push yourself if you don't like give yourself the opportunity to like go past your limits in that way you know yeah so and a lot of times that that takes though stepping outside right. you know having using the mirror in a way that gives you an actual accurate reflection mm-hmm. as opposed to you know relying on the internal mirror of you know what you th- your your own self-perception. Right. So why isn't this like emphasized? I mean this sounds like something difficult to like there's so much focus on goal setting. Right? Like that's such a thing. Yeah. Like I do some some uh speaking gigs, right? And yep. it's always like people always ask about goals which i always kind of skirt around because i don't want to be like, you, i don't want to be the guy who throws a wet blanket on this exactly shit. Yeah. <laughs> actually guys goals are to you know like, that's yeah. exactly right and <laughs> and i feel like instead of teaching all this goal you know like instead of this here's the sheet fill out your goals we should be teaching this way to like adapt goals to like self actualization or maximization right, right? Right. Sure seems like it. Or is that just not something that can be taught? No, no. Well, I think it can be taught, but it has to be thought first. Mm-hmm. Ah, right. Right? Like, um, if, uh, I mean, the whenever we, so with my old organization, we used to teach these fitness seminars, et cetera. And it's all about, like, the exercise. And it was mostly focused on the physical because that's the, 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 the level of evolvement that 
you know, I and slash we had at the time. Um, if, you know, come to one of the symposiums that we teach out here now, it's everything is a, is founded in the psychology and your relationship to effort, your relationship to yourself, self-perception, managing. I mean, if, um, if I showed you one of the manuals from the, one of the, I don't have one in here, um, symposiums, I mean, in the first 10 pages are nothing, are, are blank with a question at the top of every single one of them. And, hmm. and, and a lot of it is, I mean, the, the one I think is the most interesting, you know, there's a couple. One of the most interesting ones is, you know, what is worth knowing, and what does that have to do with fitness? Um, as an, as an aside, but um, hmm. it, it tackles the concept of subtracting rather than adding. And unfortunately, in the world today, we are additive in nature. Like we always think that doing more or having more or adding more to anything will improve it. When the it it is possible that subtracting <laughs> that doing less mileage more uh, intentionally or with greater self-awareness will actually produce a better result than just like okay if if 70 miles a week you know I could run this you know I could run a marathon this fast then obviously I should run a hundred and then I run 120 and then I keep adding to it and then it then I'm broken and I can't run anymore or something like that. Or I'm, I'm adding, Oh, the reason that I can't achieve my goals is because I'm just not working hard enough. Well, maybe, but maybe it's because you're working too hard and not allowing yourself the, the, the quietness to a recover, but b also notice how you are changing in relationship to this effort and to the uh, you know goal that you set last year you're working harder not smarter um i mean is that fair to say uh like you're trying to mask you know glibly yes yeah but i but that's not that's not all of it it in the sense that because smart doesn't necessarily mean less I mean, usually it does if you, because smart is, you know, we are efficiency machines. We're trying to, you know, get from point A to point B with the least expenditure possible. Um, in some ways until we become conscious and competitive. And then we want to do, and I think if I'm doing more than you, then I'm going to beat you. Mm-hmm. Not the case, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, rather than, I'm, I'm a little lost here. It, it, the, if I circle back to the, the way that we discuss the, it, it, it the, um, people get you know, to talk about the symposiums. The important thing to me is not the how, if you can understand accurately and deeply the why that you're doing something, the how writes itself. Right. You don't need to know the, like how many miles a week is perfect? You know, all of the, you know, the physical training for the thing. If you understand why you want to achieve this objective or why do you want to have this experience or do this particular thing, then how you prepare yourself to do it and how you behave in the actual execution of that is it's a natural outcome from understanding the intrinsic motivation for it. And the only reason, and I think the reason that people establish goals as an external you know, attractor magnet something, um, is because they, 
because they don't understand the why. They've never examined the why. And if they had the why, the goal wouldn't need to exist. Hmm. That's, a, that's a really good point. I mean, I always look up to Kelly because you have like the how kind of dialed by having a coach, by like doing things more methodically. Like when it comes March or April and I've got a big trip coming up, I, I there's no how. I, I just know. I just all of a sudden see myself working a little harder, like mm-hmm. training a little harder just because I, I know I want to make sure I'm as fit as I can be for it. Right. But control the thing you can control. But there's nothing methodical to it. It's just like, I just know, I, I, I just like subconsciously almost, it's like I'm almost unconsciously staying out longer, yeah. mm-hmm. going more frequently, whatever it is, probably not resting enough. And I'm, I'm doing these things because I know that I want to be in the best shape I can be for this event, but there's there's no how going on. But the, but the, but, but that might, and that might, uh, for your temperament, that might be the best way to address it. Mm. That's cool to know like, it's not one size fits all. Oh, no, it's no, not for sure not. And and some people don't respond to structure. Like, I would be very interested, you know, yeah, there's, um, we want to quantify things. This is generalization, because yeah. I think you're outside of it, Brody, in a sense, because, <laughs> I mean, you have like a Garmin watch or something that you look at when you, okay, so you want to quantify shit. You want to, there's like a number that matters in oh, some yeah. ways, right? Um, so whether you're training in a methodical way or, or, a, you know, doing the training in a quantified way, you want to, there's a, there is some value to this that you assign to this number. Oh yeah. I'm staring at this watch. the whole time for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and staring at a number of things like what my rate of ascent per hour is, what my yep. heart rate is at that rate of ascent per hour. And then is that, you know how is that being affected by the snow conditions the angle the skin you know all that shit yeah i totally get it we want to do that but there is enormous value in just going out and having fun and and not quantifying the training mm-hmm. necessarily um the ben- because i mean the benefit is 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 huge i mean when scott and i were you know we used to train pretty hard to go to the mountains um and i've had periods of time in my life where we used what we called the Spanish method, which was basically just fucking go out and do shit. <laughs> and, 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 and without a, st- you know, and, and have fun, go climbing, go yeah. running in the mountains, go ski touring, go do these things, but don't have an objective, like learn along the way, figure out how to manage your sort of hydration and calorie intake and that kind of stuff. But, but that, but that's not like a lesson plan that, you know, and right. then I've also been the guy whose alarm on his watch went off every 15 minutes and every 15 minutes I drank and every 30 minutes I hit a gel. I've been that guy. I've been mm-hmm. the guy who's done the structured intervals. I've needed wires. I needed data. I needed all this stuff. I've done both and both produced the same fucking outcome. Yeah, essentially. I have to say like when I was more of a, a quote unquote heart runner, you know, like I was just, yeah. a, you know, I was just like going out and running what I felt like every day. Like, j- j- like my output was like generally the same it's more like my recovery was just different hmm. you know so i'd say like because you weren't as stressed out by the structure yeah. mm-hmm. while you're doing the thing mm-hmm. so why wouldn't you just do that then now if that I, if that's the case I, I well i feel like you know like just can just, i answer just have, can i answer yeah, for you yeah for sure <laughs> because she's reached a point where structured training is required in terms of like proximity to your maximum potential. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with right, that. Right, that like the heart goes a certain amount, like it can take you really far. And some people it can take all the way to the top, mm-hmm. you know, of, of their game or whatever. It can take them all the way to, you know, fulfilling their maximum potential. Um, but generally, I think, 
we get somewhere close ish i don't know mm-hmm. can't put a number on it and then only understanding with some precision what is preventing us from going faster higher longer better um and addressing those shortcomings hmm. and that i think the heart is not precise enough to sort of uh, ascertain and manage because my heart wants to like keep going 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 so it's nice to have someone to tell me to rest therefore i'm able to do more because right. i'm recovering better like last summer i was able to do like multiple big mountain objectives like back to back to back you did do that that's true like the world of <laughs> just, just because like i was better at resting like i just learned how to rest better because i was like okay cool like i did that and especially you know our alpine summers are so short and most of you know my sport takes me it's like the alpine running season you know like so i i only have like two months to do like all these things that i want to do you know in the in the rocky mountains so like i need to be able to be very efficient about like when and how i do stuff you know hmm. but and that's know. the other thing that like if you need to schedule performance then you need to schedule training uh. right like if it's okay the alaska season is yeah let's just say it's two months but depending on your objective it's going to be more precise like mm-hmm. hey you you're not going to the south face of mckinley in april right it's going to probably be june maybe may but you know the risk there is that it's going to take longer there's going to be maybe it's maybe the temperatures are colder the risk is higher maybe june there's more snow you know whatever but still you're talking about a two-month fucking window of performance for for a big thing so i need to structure my training so that i am at you know, sort of the peak physical condition in that particular period of time. If there were no objectives that were either environmentally or artificially sort of scheduled or constructed in a way, then I think you could get away with, you know, going by heart a lot better. But if I need to be fit on a particular day or a particular week or within a, you know, month period or that two month period or whatever, um, then then that requires a bit more preparation. Hmm. And that's why I think a coach is useful and, and yeah. And, and she's and great. Structured. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I had the best season of like my life last year, which is, which is cool. And she, and she still also understands that like I'm stubborn. And hmm. if I don't want to run, if I want to go snowboard, like I'm gonna go snowboard, you know, or if I'm gonna go climb, you know, in sinks for the weekend, I'm going to go do that, you know? And, and she knows that I'm going to fight her on that too. Cause like, I'm still like, there's a lot of heart there. And if like, you know, yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to stay home and like do a 20 mile run when I can go like climb with my friends at like wild iris, you know, but you know, um, and if we go to a wild iris, I only need a 40 meter rope. It's awesome. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a nice balance of both, you know, Mark, is it easy to answer what you would have like told your 30, I don't know, let's say 32 year old self. <laughs> just to throw a number just out to there. Just throw a number out there, like you know, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four. I'd love to hear that answer too. Actually, it's and I ask that maybe it, it's in, maybe it's in regards to what we're talking about. Maybe not. I, yeah, I mean, I would I, in regards to what we're talking about. I would say have a bit more respect for the concept of athletic longevity, hmm. because, um. These physical activities, they have a, I'll just say, they have a physical toll. And if we, if I had managed, here, let me just throw this one on you. If I had managed my recovery better back mm. then, 
I'd probably be in better physical condition now. Like, and I'll just say the option for sort of, we'll start from the feet up. The option for <laughs> treatment of the condition of my ankle, you know, let's see, two out of three opinions fuse it is all that's possible. Three knee surgeries on the left knee, two shoulder reconstructions, hip replacement, general chronic stuff that's all related to mileage and the fact that I didn't look after because I thought I was bulletproof or I thought I was going to die. And then I wouldn't have to, you know, consider the later stages of life. Yeah. That was one takeaway from your book that like, it's one or the other. It's mm -hmm. the, 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 the way you act is the same. Is yeah. that right? Okay, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then getting to a point and realizing like, okay, I'm probably going to have to ride this thing out. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you know, like, and then, and then what, do, <laughs> and then what do I like? Okay. Well, I can't un unwalk those miles just to clarify you just said oops i'm still alive i did actually yeah. <laughs> sorry go on. Um, but if you if, if if i mean i was on the trajectory that like and many of my friends and certainly you know uh people climbers that went alpine climbers you know operating at a high level that were ahead of me you know, all died. So it was pretty much clear that that's going to be the outcome. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily, I'm going to fight it, you know, because that's inherent. It's built into us. But, um, but the, the, and it's really, it, it's super easy for the old guy to say, huh, think about your future, young man, you know, or whatever, like you should save money. Um, <laughs> you should invest in property, <laughs> like ninth and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, uh, there, there, it, it, and it's not that I don't remember the fire back then, mm -hmm. but I think it could have, if, if, I think I might, and, and, and may, but it also might not have been possible. I think it might have been, however, possible to, uh, manage that output in a way that, um, lowered the long-term cost whether I could have achieved my objectives yeah that's what I want to know yeah like could you have achieved the same objectives by lowering that output I um, with me personally my temperament I don't think I could um, but it was a temperament thing but I think a... it's a temperament thing more more than anything else is just like this is my relationship to effort this is my relationship to these objectives and and the mountains and my ambition and my ego and all of this stuff um it, it is it's why i went about it in the way that i did um and since i couldn't change myself i couldn't change that outcome mm -hmm. and and even now it's like oh the leopard's spots are still that you know i'm not in the in the amount of time i have left the you know the, the spots are not you know i'm not going to change much i don't think unless i have some gigantic you know existential sort of <laughs> crisis or epiphany or whatever or something i don't know i mean it could could be and you see it happen with people a lot um some event happens you know they're like oh i got cancer so i became vegan and then i got more cancer because i became vegan and so i went back to eating meat and everything got better just throwing that out there for people to call bullshit on it's all i'm saying there but um 
uh yeah that 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 would be the advice is like whether you can act whether you know 32 year old me you could act on it or not um it still would have been interesting to hear from someone who'd actually done those miles and is living with the outcome but 32 year old you wasn't feeling those no it's like i I don't know if i'm pushing it right now too hard yeah i feel fine right yeah Yeah. but and and exactly which makes it really hard to project into the future if you want to push limits it's hard to like think about being conservative you know for the longevity of the sport when you're like but I could like get the record on this thing or whatever. But there's a huge and, difference, like, and, and and a gulf between. And this is actually a conversation I had, you know, part of the conversation with Nick Laz today mm-hmm. was um, in, on the topic of health. And when people start to engage in you know physical activity in the gym or whatever, they start paying attention to their diet and shit like that. They think they're you know, and um, and and some people do that in in relation to an objective of becoming more healthy. Maybe they'd experience some illness or some inability to do something that they wanted to do, and so, um, and then they get competitive and then they start seeing these goals maybe i can be the fastest on this maybe i could you know um beat that person in competition or whatever and then all of a sudden becomes a performance thing and that has generally negative consequences to one's health because performance and health i mean if you just think about it every like kelly top top you know runners that you know oh my god mostly broken or at least dealing yeah. with some chronic Mostly. nagging fucking injury. Like, all oh, it's time. an inverse relationship between yes. performance and health. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Sorry. Right. But, um, yes. Most, it, most have pretty serious injuries. Yeah. Or something like, you know, there was a guy back in the day who would talk about like the negative, you know, okay, somebody dropped dead, you know, of a heart attack in the New York City Marathon or something like marathoning's fucking dangerous. You know, you shouldn't right. be doing that. You get, you do all that physical training, your heart gets enlarged and stuff and it's, you know, and, and yeah, and it's unhealthy. But then it might be mentally very healthy for that individual. It might be mentally fucking necessary mm-hmm. to perform or exercise or train it with that particular sort of intensity. And so I think the trade um, and, and, and the types of activities will also affect that because if it's someone, if it's, you know, we'll just say that, yeah, riding a bike comes with certain costs, but those are not the same costs that high mileage running comes mm-hmm. with. So certain activities, the higher impact ones, are gonna, I mean, if, if you, even if you just look at training volume of mm-hmm. what athletes can tolerate and what is necessary to succeed in the sport, running is almost always in terms of, if you measure by time doing the activity, it's almost always about half of what a cyclist or a rower or a swimmer mm-hmm. is gonna do. Until you hit some threshold? Um, no. Well, I mean, what's half, I guess? Like, I mean, the amount of time until no, no, just the amount of, so how many annual hours, let's oh, say. Oh, gotcha, okay. Right, like like the, the runner's going to be, you know, 600, 700. The, the rower or the swimmer might be, you know, between 11 and 1300, the Nordic skier. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with, A, it could be the inefficiency of the machines, the bike or whatever, like you need to be longer on it in mm-hmm. order to get the same. Or the efficiency, depending how you look at it. Or right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, or yeah. the efficiency. But it could also just be that the fact that, like, because of the impact you can't tolerate more mileage mm. at least if you want to have a long athletic career 
Well, that's and one of the reasons I got a road bike was because it's low impact, right. but I can still like get out for hours outside and exercise and get cardio. Yeah. But like, and it's fantastic for your knees. You know? Yeah. So I would say that like ski touring is, you know, you're not banging moguls, so it's pretty good. It you know, takes a lot of hours. It's pretty efficient or anything. It's pretty yeah. efficient yeah. And, it's lo- and it's low impact, you know, yeah. you know, the bike packing kind of thing, same thing. It's, it's generally low impact and you can do it for a long period of time. Um, the running thing and the hundred mile race off the couch. Yeah. Maybe a, co- a little bit more costly, let's say, but, um, yeah, I think it's just like, okay, I, I guess analyzing the, the, the long-term cost and am I willing to pay that pri- with an accurate understanding? Am I willing to pay that price in order to have these experiences that I am able to have right now? Stealing from my future self. Potentially. I think about that when you know, I drink or, every night. Fair enough. You know, I'm like, huh, how much happiness am I going to steal? From tomorrow from morning. Tomorrow. <laughs> from yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Or how much, how is my behavior tonight going to affect my uh, ability to train, to do the workout that my right, coach totally. assigned Oh, and just tomorrow. to be clear, when I said like, Every night that I do drink, I didn't mean like I drink every night. I actually don't drink that much, but, <laughs> but tonight I am. But, but uh, so. I, I guess, yeah. We are. <laughs> well, Mark and I are, Brody. Brody's a good He's looking. Good he's, looking he's looking into the future. That's not worth the cost, you know, or whatever I'm, I might pay. Um, and, and I, th- yeah, and I, I think having an accurate sort of, because it, it idea of what things might cost in the future, what life might look like in the future. And, and then, but we're not going to change our behavior now, probably regardless of whether or not we have that awareness, but we might, you might look at like, you might start paying a bit more attention to recovery Mm -hmm. now in order to preserve the length of time that the physical vessel is viable. I wonder if we have some kind of like innate way to, you know, we're not, we can't see the future, but we have some innate feeling about what's going to be viable for the future. And, you know, Mm -hmm. like if I was a skateboarder taking big falls every day, I would probably know that this is going to be less viable (laughs) than like walking uphill all day, every day. Mm -hmm. But you might love skateboarding so much that it's worth it. And the, and the, the social, sort of organism that is all that is built you know among human beings around skateboarding that might just be the thing that gets you makes you so happy that it's worth it and then yeah there's i mean if you um is it chasing lightning the the um the danny way uh documentary is it there's a documentary on him yeah oh that's cool uh Searching for lightning, chasing lightning, something anyway. It's amazing because it's 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 sort of his whole career. I mean, that guy's fucking phenomenal skater. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 number of fucking horrendous impacts that guy suffers, and it's all and the documentary basically builds up to him jumping the Great Wall of China on the skateboard, and they built this fucking ramp. I mean, it's crazy because he misses the first time, the landing. Oh, oh God. Huh. It's pretty far, and, and some of these accidents, and you just go, well, I can't, you know, if I look at it from his point of view, I mean, it's like, yeah, there's a huge cost to this, to these, you know, to what I'm putting my body through, but I'm one of the very best guys in the world, and it's almost in that position, 
A, he really wants to do it, but it, I, my sense is that like he sensed it was kind of a duty to be there. Like I'm here, I gotta push these limits sure. mm-hmm. to pave the way for others to understand that you know what a human being can actually do. Mm-hmm. Knowing that he's stealing from his future self or whatever. Yeah. 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 Or you go to like if you I remember um at some point it's I'm just say fifteen years ago or whatever, I was talking with uh Tim Wagner and and he had just started working um uh, with fly cam people so they're flying cameras around for different athletic events or whatever he's a climber and they can rig all the lines and everything that this is pre-drone mm-hmm. um and he was at the uh he had done a couple of x games events and he's just like man it's super heavy to see the number of people in fucking wheelchairs at the x games wow. who used to be down there performing <coughs> and i was like whoa mm. there's a fee yeah for some of these things and uh and happily, you know, absent, you know, get involved in an avalanche or something, you know, I think the impact of on our bodies in ski touring is pretty, I'm not going to say minimal, but manageable. I think ski touring is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like skiing the Wasatch. That's why so many old guys are skiing the Wasatch, right? <laughs> Good point. It's way safer than Colorado for the first, first part. So there can be old guys here. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's, I'm going to have to sit with that question a little bit more, Brody. (laughs) There's nothing non-training specific that comes to mind. Um, yeah, there is. (laughs) It's really hard to say out loud though. Mm. That's fair. You don't have to, obviously. <laughs> now I can't not say it, though, which is um, I would have told myself to go a little easier on myself. Hmm. That, yeah, the I, I was able to turn, you know, I think it was Jim Carn's phrase. I'm just going to steal. Well, no, it was actually a, he used it in an article but it was a bad religion song, the positive aspects of negative thinking. And I always approach things from a more, like I wargamed every possible negative outcome going into the mountains. I was always looking for all the bad shit that could possibly happen. And what can I do to mitigate, you know, those risks or, you know, uh, proof myself against those kind of outcomes. Um, where, uh, and, and that approach and that um, was, you know, put sort of a, okay, I'm only looking at the dark side of everything. That's not something I get to turn on and turn off uh, or to turn off when it's um, inappropriate. Let's say, yeah, that for me was the right way, very black and white. Um, that was the right way for me to approach the mountains. Probably not the right way to approach personal relationships. Oh, you mean turn off outside of the mountains? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, um, and then when, and when I say go easier on yourself, like when I underachieved, when I did not fulfill expectations, when I did not do the things that I like, I got scared and turned back or whatever it was, I mean, I would be super harsh with myself. And I don't know that that ultimately was 
helpful for psychological development for one, but also didn't help me like the, the, the manifestation of that harshness was, you know, training harder, training higher intensity, doing like more stuff, you know, to punish myself. (laughs) And now I look at that, I'm like, punish my body to perfect my soul. What the fuck? You know? Yeah. It worked at the time, but I'm like, what did I do wrong? (laughs) What do I need to get punished for? Oh, well, failure to achieve. Yeah. Okay. I get that. I mean, I get that, but, um, but that's not, and that might just be something like I'm going to like show the, the slide in the PowerPoint presentation to my 32 year old self, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to ask any action on that. Just like any PowerPoint presentation, here's an idea, here's a concept. We'll do a little build. There'll be some colors and blah, blah, blah. Everybody's going to forget it in like 10 minutes. As soon as this meeting's over, people are going to be like, fuck that guy. (laughs) So that would be, um, I think that's all you can, that I could do is to 32-year-old Mark is to like show him here's a thing that this is what you're going to think in the future about this stuff. Good luck. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I, no, you, I, I wonder. Wow, okay. He wouldn't have done anything about it. Oh, fuck no. He <laughs> <laughs> would just be like, I, you just wasted 15 minutes. That PowerPoint presentation that was three hours long, for fuck's sake. <laughs> First of all, but those are three hours I'll never get back. <laughs> Besides, what the you stuffed shirt, old mother? You don't know what it's like to be young and ambitious, man. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> No, I remember back in the day. Got my cane. Oh my <laughs> like, god, no! <laughs> Damn. Yeah. So thirty. Th- I. I, th- it, I think it's. It, it would have been hard for. Uh, I mean, but also thirty-two was about the time I was. Conclu- was recognizing that I did not know everything. Had you right. done a lot of, what you did by the time you were thirty-two? Oh yeah. Oh, I feel so young. That is crazy to think how much you had accomplished already. That is. I mean, wow. so if you think, I mean, the, the way to think about it is that wow. I quit climbing uh, in the year 2000. I was, I mean, basically 40 years old. Wow. So everything I did was between 20 and 40. And then I still went to the mountains a little bit for um, military training trips and stuff like that. But as far as like the big big things, difficult things, dangerous things, that was all done. Everything that was... Mm-hmm. My climbing career was compressed into a pretty yeah. short period of time compared to other, you know, many other people. I mean, especially mm. ones who are still alive and still going out. But I mean, I look right. at Steve Swenson now as a yeah. guy. I'm just like, all right, a bit of an outlier, but yeah, yeah a little bit maybe. You know, which is every time he posts something on social media, I'm just like, holy shit! <laughs> this, yes, Steve, like because. He was a guy I looked up to when I started climbing. Wow. <laughs> really? He's a local Seattle guy and one of the wow. one of the guys who was charging really hard when I first started. And to realize that he's still do he's doing things that are still really hard. Like I just think of like the you know, he went out with the um the thing that he just did with Mark Ritchie and I'm like Links wow, are the links are yeah, I'm just like Wait, there's like a hundred years of fucking climbing experience between those two dudes. <laughs> right. Between two. It's not like 10 guys get together and there's a hundred <laughs> yeah. years of climbing experience. It's two guys. Like, mother. So, like, just in terms of athletic longevity, like, there's a guy who managed it really well. 
Yeah, I wonder what he did to recover. <laughs> it'd be. Uh, I wonder if he sleeps a lot. Um, maybe, you know. And it, but it'd be it's it's something to be easy to ask, you know, because because sure. I'm sure his relationship with a the activity, but like the physical preparation for it has evolved. Sure, quite yeah. a lot over time. But and then also you get to that point where he's just like, yeah, I've been doing this for forty five fucking years, or more. Fifty, let's say. I'm pretty fit and I'm pretty fucking efficient. Well, I can get maybe get away with a little bit less fitness because he's so efficient and experienced. Right. And and certain things that require conscious thought and effort in others are completely automatic. Mm-hmm. You looked up to him when you started that. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean Seattle at that time, I mean it was him, Todd Bibbler, Jim Nelson. I mean, those were like, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> I mean, I, to, to see him, and I, I haven't, I saw him a few years ago at Alpine Club meeting, and uh, just like, holy shit. <laughs> not my, per- you know, it's not my temperament. Like, I didn't have that same relationship. I don't, I don't think I ever loved climbing as much as he does. And therefore, it was, it had to have an end to it for me. I wonder if you loved punishing yourself more than he did or does. Maybe, <laughs> and maybe that's why. I, I mean, I think there was an, a, an inverse sort of. I mean, if we say that intensity is the opposite of duration, I means Steve's been a lot of places, done a lot of hard things. Um, and I think I had a really, you know, let's say higher intensity, which reduce the duration mm-hmm. that was feasible graham zimmerman's one of my dear friends and it's cool to hear it's like i'm i feel like steve has i've never even met the guy and i feel like i'm he's like mentoring me just through graham <laughs> all the things that like graham you know graham's like my age he like passes down this wisdom and i'm like who are you oh you spent two months with steve, steve Swenson, yeah, and i get exactly. it okay you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. um and it is i mean it's just yeah, it's pretty incredible to, to receive that, oh, even yeah. secondhand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and the, the fact that he's um, around to do it is pretty remarkable. I, I mean, in and of itself, like, yeah. oh, you, you know, because many aren't. Yeah. Um, but, and, and, you know, be that as it may, he's, he, he is present and able and willing yeah. Like it seems like he's always taking young guys out. It's super cool. <laughs> yeah, only people I can like, keep up still. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be. That could be. Um, <laughs> I feel like you have somewhere to be, Brody. Yeah, sure. No? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a fundraiser going on this evening. Um, oh, okay. In Park City. So that's cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, so there is that. All right. You're supposed to wear one of those like onesies from whatever decade when I was barely born yet, you know, oh. like a neon thing. Okay. And I don't, you're talking about like limiting things can enhance the, I've limited my uh, possessions in life. Uh-huh. You <laughs> so no I don't exactly have, have like neon onesies and, you know. <laughs> funny goggles and stuff <laughs> Fun, this sounds like something that pit viper is putting on that's exactly that's kind of the idea i think okay. yeah. <laughs> it's it's a protector winners fundraiser okay um yeah <laughs> that's well that'd be interesting i guess a onesie 
for a fun <laughs> drive in. So you're gonna have to show up not wearing a onesie. Yeah, that's. I guess that's the case. All right. I'll tell you. Um, I wanted to tell you. I, I don't know when I read Kiss or Kill, but I brought it home and told my girlfriend, "You have to read this to like." I'm not this, but you need to read this to understand me. You need to read this because this is my favorite book. Okay. Not because this is me. Maybe it's a little bit me, but you need to read this because this like this will explain something about me. And she refused to read it. Okay. Maybe I told her too much about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I ended up giving it away and I, uh, as I did with my books and, and I like, I still just like want her I just want everyone I know. I just want it to like be my like family to, I just want people to read it and like get me a little bit better, you know? Cause I don't know. I don't know when you wrote it, if you intend like people to see themselves in it, even though they're not that. Oh, I think it's a good means of, um, exposing things in people that, they might not otherwise see. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Which is wild because it's yeah. so off one end of the spectrum, though. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I get it. Like, you, especially with the relationship with with those of us who like to go do dangerous things in the mountains. Mm-hmm. You know, like if someone else outside of that can like gain a little bit of that perspective, maybe they'll just you know be a little bit more lenient with us who I those of us 100% who hundred percent agree with that. You know, like. <laughs> why we like why do you do the things that you do well uh mark wrote a book like right, he'll, he'll tell right. you and i'm not doing this stuff but that <laughs> not was exactly this stuff at all but and, but and my but. attitude is not this attitude um i mean i sat down in this room a couple of weeks ago with uh a guy who's a really good friend of kyle dempster's and she's still going yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's howling. It's a, we, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, and uh, and Kyle had been working on the second edition, second edition of Extreme Alpinism before he went to Pakistan and got killed, and uh, um, had written a bunch of it. And and and, and Jesse Meese is the guy who came in, and we sat down for a little bit, and he showed me Kyle's copy of Extreme Alpinism with color coded sort of highlights and post it notes and annotations and everything, and and some of the stuff that he'd written. Um, um, in relation to that, and I, and I, and and in the preface, you know, he's talking a, a, about his relationship with the mountains, his attitude to the mountains. He's just like, yeah, Mark's experience was different than mine, and and I, I think the way that he managed relationships with you know family and 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 and, and people who watched who he left to go to the mountains and then came back to was a, a, a completely different more respectful um uh heart and love way than i used so like i don't think kiss or kill is it, it it's kind of represent i mean it's represented it's my story my relationship with the mountains his was completely different and um and he was successful productive like he did really hard things in the mountains but went at it with a little bit different attitude and i and i wish that his version of that relationship to mountains and people um could be told Mm. um 
I'm not saying it's impossible because there's a fair amount of that book written. Um, but just reading that and realizing like that he came from a completely different place from me. Like his is the book that Kelly people should read, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> Cause mine is basically like, I don't, you know, people read it and maybe that, that it's helpful to understand sort of the obsession and the commitment mm -hmm. and, and, um, and the singular focus, but there's also a whole other possible way to, um, relate and, and do those things. That's interesting. Cause maybe that's, maybe I would relate way more with, it's just like yours is the only is, one really right, that yeah. would, <laughs> that would give any in, inkling of information about that, you know? Yeah. And when you say it's more respectful, respectable, do, do you mean, I, I mean, respectful of people in his life gotcha. that, yeah. who cared okay. for him it's and more who, for whom he cared. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And I was just willing to cut away, you know, like, Oh, you're not into my program and you're no longer useful. Bye. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. That Which is really cool to read about. <laughs> someone else doing it. Someone else doing it. <laughs> totally. Exactly. It's a great story. It's, a, it's an amazing. And when I read it, sometimes I'm like, I fuck. I wish that hadn't been me. <laughs> Interesting. You wish you were reading that about someone else. Um, you, in a, in jokingly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. yeah. like, because I can't, you know, disassociate. But right. Yeah. All right. We yeah. need to wrap it up because Sparkle is in her crate and now howling because it has been. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. It's yeah. been a, a minute of minutes. Did you press record? I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's two and a half plus hours. Pretty standard for you. Yeah, it yeah. seems like standard. <laughs> I was kind of thinking like, okay, he's got to get out of here. We'll go like an hour, hour and 15 minutes and then, but I'm glad we went longer because it got. Got good. It got good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's, thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Doctor. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Kelly, thanks for coming back. Of course. And, it's so fun chatting. chatting making this introduction. Like we've, oh, yeah. I think we've kind of like waved on social media or via Strava or something. Every, in a, in a, <laughs> and I just figured like, oh, well, someday we'll meet. I'm glad it happened. Sure. And thank you. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you. Um. Yeah, we might have to revisit a, you know, a conversation about conservation and some of the stewardship stuff because I'm getting a little angry enough again. Yeah, I hope under uh, better, uh, <laughs> circum better political circumstances. Yeah, exactly. circumstances. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm gonna vote, and and I'll do you know. What the? I don't know if it's if vote the environment is trademarked, but I guess I'll probably do that. It's a thing. Do that. Thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um. So, Brody11.com. Yeah. Right. That's the. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you and and I, honestly, I think like the 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 protect our winters thing. Anybody involved in sort of activities and that that, that require cooler temperatures, um, <laughs> to do, uh, check it out. Yeah, I think it's a uh, really good work there. I work with the uh, Protect Our Winters, Winter Wildlands Alliance, Heal Utah, Sierra Club, all those kind of organizations I, I volunteer with, and I think they're all doing really notable work. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. Yeah. And uh, all right, we got to stop. It's really hard to stop always, so I'm just going <laughs> to press stop. Yeah. Bye bye. Stop it. Bye. Stop it. <laughs>